VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, good morning. If you were looking for Patty, he is off for the next couple of days. It's Tim Powers. I'm sitting in for Patty here with Dave Williams today and Sarah Strickland tomorrow. So glad to be with you before we start. Before I get right into whatever I'm going to rant or ramble about, I'm not sure yet. Let me throw out a massive bouquet to the VOCM engineering team and the production team because they had to fix me this morning. And let me tell you, I take more than duct tape and stitches. I am a piece of work when it comes to technology. When they were giving out the brains for technology and technical skills, I was most certainly way, 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 way back. I still may not even have found them. Uh, was getting ready for this program and discovered there was an issue with um, with one of the, uh, the speaker features. And anyway, the team just jumped on board. Lorne and Craig and Jason, they're awesome. VOCM has so many awesome people on board. You know, you hear all the ones on the air, and you hear us talk about uh, Dave and others, but uh, thumbs up. Uh, best, One of the best teams, if not the best team I work with across the country, and I love working with the, with them all. And uh, so if we drop today, if somehow there's a technical glitch, it's not them, it's me. We've all heard that before, but it is true in this case. Anyway, let's hope we can stay on the air uh, and keep going so we can talk Talk to lots of you today. I hope everybody had a great weekend. I have to tell you, parental highlight weekend this weekend. So some of you will know um, because you've probably heard the story about the 96-year-old woman who set a record in the 5K race, and that was here in Ottawa, that this was Ottawa race weekend. And I know lots of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have come up here over the years to participate. Prior to the pandemic, they were getting nearly 35,000 people to run in everything from the 2K to the to the marathon. It's just, just an awesome experience. The city comes alive for it. Uh, the region comes alive for it. Anyway, my son and I and his mom, uh, we did a 2K, and I, I did what was called the 17K Challenge, but that, that's less, irrelevant, less relevant than my son. So my son, he's, uh, his name's Patrick, as you know. You hear me speak of him often. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me, that little fella. Anyway, he, he says, Dada, you know, if, uh, if we do this race and I beat you, can, can you give me $100? And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm going. I, I thought I'd do the father thing and probably let him beat me anyway. But I figured, you know, he'd go slow. 2K, maybe walk, maybe do it in 15 minutes. He was a rocket. He shot off so quickly. He was... He, blasted through the 2k did it less than 10 minutes i think his time was 9:45 he was the third kid out of 500 and that age group went to 19 year olds and he beat me i actually he beat me by two or three seconds and I tried to win I was so happy so pleased I don't care about the the winning although I'm pretty proud of him coming in third I just think the effort and the determination and watching his face and the face of all the families it was awesome and fantastic and I know it'll be the same in St. John's when the Tele 10 happens uh, in 
in at the end of August, towards the end of August. I'm coming. I'm looking forward to running that. But uh, proud dad moment. Proud dad moment after a, a, a crazy week. So you all know what it's like, the parents that are out there, how enjoyable it is to see a glow on a child's face when they achieve something that they're very proud of. And uh, I think he enjoyed crushing his dad. I came up right by his ear and I said, hey, I call him Padgy. Hey, Padgy, I'm right here. And he, the little bugger sprinted off and these 53, four-year-old legs could not catch up with him. Crushed by my two, three, by my seven-year-old, soon to be eight-year-old. Anyway, that's my little indulgence. You have any great stories you want to share? Tell us. I see some great stories this week. It was good to see in the House of, House of Assembly I, athletes getting recognized last week. That's awesome. Now, what's on the docket today that I'm sure people are going to want to talk about? Well, of course, the ode is back in the news. Memorial has some convocation ceremonies this week, and a group are planning to protest the um, still... I guess exclusion of the ode from convocation ceremonies by hosting a singing and of the ode to Newfoundland outside the Arts and Culture Center, where I believe the convocation is happening. That's later this week. Uh, of course, Memorial has a new interim president, Dr. Bose. He says the university is still reviewing this. Um, still, obviously, a topic of great contention. What do you think? Are you going to join that protest? Uh, how would you like to see this, uh, this issue resolved? I, I saw a letter in the Telegram this weekend, and I think I'm of this particular view that I, I support the updating of the ode. I think that's important. But I think we can find a way to continue to use it in important ceremonies at the university. Uh, it does reflect our history. But what, what do you think? That's my view. Uh, I'm but one voice. Uh, we'll see where all of this goes. But uh, it's still a lively topic. I'm sure many of you saw the column Rex Murphy wrote a number of weeks ago about all of this. And uh, Rex uh, didn't pull any punches on his particular perspective. You want to talk about that? Let's do that. Also, if you want to talk about the Atlantic Premier's calling for delay of the federal clean fuel tax, let's uh, dig into that. Now, this is interesting because... On July 1st, the federal government is moving forward with its clean fuel tax. There will also be an increase um, in the carbon tax at that time. So that in this, these circumstances, for many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, for many Atlantic Canadians, is going to have a big bite out of the wallet. Do you think the federal government is going to move on this? It's, uh, it's one they seem to be trying to hold the line as best they can, though they did uh, give Newfoundland and Labrador some space to delay the imposition of the carbon tax. But I think it's a legacy piece for the Prime Minister. What will he do here? Will he listen to the Atlantic Premiers? Uh, certainly he's got some strong ministers in this region, Goody Hutchings being one of them, Seamus O'Regan and another, who are trying to help the Liberals hold on to seats uh, whenever that next election comes. They're, they're certainly being bitten at if the gossip is to be believed by the conservatives. Where is this going to play out? How will it play out? The other thing I'm watching related to this 
and where it might go is what happens in Alberta tonight. And we're going to have my colleague, Dr. David Coletto, on a little bit later to talk about the Alberta election. I know we have listeners in Alberta, uh, and I'm very glad. I hope there's some on today. And if you're there, call us, because based on what we are polling in Abacus, we have the UCP, which is the current government, ahead by one point. Now, they can't have a minority in Alberta because there aren't enough parties to have a minority. It's either a win or a loss, UCP or the NDP. So if the NDP, if the UCP win, I'm sure Daniel Smith will be in line with her Atlantic colleagues, though I doubt she will cheer uh, vigorously. She's got Alberta issues to, to, uh, to manage about calling for a delay. If Rachel Notley wins, how will she manage it all? Uh, she has been more, had a more cooperative approach with Justin Trudeau. She previously was the premier of, uh, New, Brun- of New Brunswick, excuse me, of Alberta and worked very well with the prime minister, but in fairness to her, has made the case that as it relates to oil and gas and its development in Alberta and the Presumably, her perspective extends to Canada. It's vital and it's important. And we have to have in her, I'm paraphrasing her, we have to have, you know, graduated models, transitions that work, uh, that are also reflective of the times people find themselves in. It's, uh, it's, It's tough out there. It's expensive. It is very expensive. And if this fuel tax increase comes in, you can be damn sure that it probably will have a political impact, at least in the short term, on the Liberal government. I suspect, uh, because they've been already been great customers of VOCM and Stingray, that you'll hear more ads from the Conservatives calling out the government, federal government, on all of this. You want to weigh in on all of that? Do it. I saw there was some debate last week about new appointments at the pub, Public Utilities Board, and the, the cost of all of that. Happy, uh, happy to chat on all of that. One person I want to talk about, I didn't have a chance um, in the last few weeks to, to speak about Gus Etchegary, and uh, I was happy to see this station when Mr. Etchegary passed away and uh, uh, pay proper and thorough homage to the man, and I also saw the, uh, the CBC this week putting out a piece about the importance of Gus Etchegary. I, I just want to say I didn't know him super well, but had the occasion in this role to, to talk to him, to listen to him because that was perhaps for me and for many I'm sure for Patty and for Greg and others the most engaging thing about Mr. Echegary was listening to him impart his knowledge the history that he had lived and grow from it he was a person who would call this program and other programs and you just had to listen because there was so much thought so much experience so much passion behind what he said and his life story so incredible he'd been there in, in St. Lawrence around the Truxton and the Pollock his, uh, his commitment in soccer I was involved in Newfoundland and Labrador soccer when I was younger uh, well known I mean the purse the man did so much and was so committed to the province um, and to his family I'm sorry I never got the opportunity to say this um, I am so sorry for your loss the province is sorry for your loss Gutch Etchigari was a giant, a giant who cared. And in this era where we 
live in a political environment where everything is weaponized and everybody's brutalized and if you have a different perspective you're you know you're you can be assassinated personally first as opposed to heard Mr. Echegaray did for public conversation what, what we all should do. He did his work. He did his homework. He engaged. He did it respectfully. He fought hard for the things he believed in and challenged the views of others, but he did it in such a way that you wanted to keep talking to him. And for people that are in the public realm now, that are trying to be our province's next Gus Echegaray, listen to his old interviews, read some of the things that he did, look at what he did. I remember when I was a young fellow working in the uh, Minister of Fisheries office when Gus Echegaray called, he, you know, the minister listened to him, premiers listened to him because they knew he knew his stuff. Of course, he ran FPI for a while. Anyway, late to the game here, wanted to say that about Gus Echegaray. Um, and for me, as I say, as we look at what's happening in the United States, we look at what's happening in Canada, we look at what's happening in public conversations and how intensely personal and visceral and nasty they are, um, that we miss people like Gus Echegaray who add substance and thought and fair critique. And uh, I encourage us all to do that. Yes, on open line today, I still want characters. I still like a good Donnybrook, but... I like it more, uh, I like substance more than entertainment, uh, though entertainment is good too. And in the end, that's what we want, is substantive dialogue. A couple of other things maybe you want to take a talk about. It's interesting to me, uh, the wildfires in Halifax. We're going to try and get somebody on the phone today to talk about that. We have a lot of people in Newfoundland and Labrador who live in Halifax. I was there last weekend. Uh, it was pouring rain, so there was not a smoldering ember. If they were, they were well hidden. Uh, had a lovely uh, weekend in Halifax. But these wildfires, can you imagine engulfing Halifax? Uh, it's, uh, it's terrifying. It's leading our news. We're going to see if we can get somebody from our Stingray partners in Halifax to come on and tell us about that. Or if you are listening in Halifax and want to tell us what it's like, how you're coping, how you're managing, that would be, um, would be fantastic to do. And how about this? I got to end with this and then we'll, take, we'll, we'll go to break in a minute. I love this story now because it's just, just so metaphorical. It's almost biblical. The snakes in the grass in Cornerbrook or in the West Coast, the imported snakes. When I was a kid, I just hated snakes, and I still do hate snakes. My son loves to catch garter snakes and hang them in front of me and say, Oh, da-da, snake, snake! And I just, just, just don't like them. I remember my late father, Barney, and I were in Florida with a, on a family trip one time, and a snake slithered by, and he picked me up, and we ran away, and that still sticks in memory. But now we have garter snakes in Cornerbrook. And the West Coast, is that a sign of the apocalypse? Is that a sign of something coming? They were imported on the island, and there's lots of, I know, uh, animal behavioral specialists, people who study the ecosystem, biologists, and others who will tell us that can be prob problematic. Snakes in the grass could be the theme of every open line show that I have ever hosted. Snakes in the grass. Now, just before we go, I just got a text from a well-trusted source at the Telegram who wanted to tell me, and I think uh, I knew this, but on the Tele 10, it is uh, June, I think it's June 20, let me just go here, hang on, anyway, I'm checking now, 
Telegram. Oh, yeah. The Telly 10 is Sunday, June 25th. Sunday, June 25th. Move back from last year and the heat wave. Thank you for letting me know. I will be there. I did sign up for Sunday, June 25th. Hope you will be, too. Now, if you can pick something out of that buffet table of ranting and rambling I did, give me a call. I know there are others on the line who want to chat. So happy to be with you. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Back with your call shortly. Welcome back to Open Line. Tim Powers in here for Patty for the next two days. Reminder, if you want to get me, of course, you can get me on Twitter at PowersTim or on our email, openline at vocm.com. Well, I'm glad this has happened. I was talking about Gus Echegarry, and Dr. Phil Earl has now joined us to do the same thing. Uh, are you there, Dr. Earl? Yes, Tim. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, don't think I've ever spoken to you before, but it's quite an honor. Uh, I just caught the the end of your introduction there, and it's very appropriate. And it's just a wonderful words that you said about Gus. But I'd like to say a few words. And actually, Please. when I when I turned the show on, I've been here all morning writing an article for the paper about uh, Gus and our fishery. And okay. I just want to say as an introduction, you know. It is absolutely amazing that a man of 98 could have such passion and energy about the fishery, which he's had all his life. And I guess uh, uh, I knew Gus really well, I was close to him. And I think that if a person has a, a, a truth, something uh, that they believe in and they see, and this. Uh, possesses them the way Gus did. I guess that's why he never lost the focus and energy, even up until one day before he died in the hospital. Now, I want to share something with you, which his son, which, which his son told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when Gus went to the hospital, I think a week or so before he passed, he was talking to friends in Norway. He was always talking to people in the fishery. He took three charts with him to the hospital. He said, I must have these because if I get a call from my friends in Norway, I want to be able to reference these these files. So here he was in, in, in a very sick and, and slowly, you know, uh, uh, de- de- degrading. Mm-hmm. And so he gets to the hospital. And a couple of hours before he died, now just listen to this. I want people to know this about Gus Etchikari. They gave him a shot because he was in so much pain and suffering. And after a short while, the shot, you know, took away his pain and discomfort. He calmed down and his mind became lucid. And Glenn told me, Glenn Etchikari's son, he said, and this is emotional for me, he said, it was the greatest conversation I had with my father in my life that hour and a half. I couldn't That's believe incredible. it. incredible. Wow. And then, when he was finished, he looked at Glenn and he said, Glenn, this is going to be hard on me, but harder on you. I have to shove off. And he closed his eyes oh. and died. Now, can you believe that? Now, let me tell you something, and the people in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. He was our fishing elder. Mm-hmm. He was a master. He loved everything about the fishery and our people. And I just want to mention a couple of things here. Please. Which he said about the fishery. Well, you have to understand something. This resource out here don't belong to any governments. Mm-hmm. But they act as if it's under their control. The, the the quotas are given by the federal government. The licenses are given by the local government. But this resource is a renewable resource. If left alone to nature... 
it'll restore itself. And this is what Gus was saving, saying in one of his last interviews. Now, I want to give you an image. I have to make up this analogy because you've heard this before. The fishing resource is, is a renewable. Zone. Well, here's what comes to mind. If you had a gold mine and you dug out an ore, a vein that was very rich in gold, and you dug out millions of dollars one day with your equipment and so on, you dug a hole and you took it, you come back the next day and you go in a mine in the same spot, and this hole that you dug the gold out of before, you look at it, and guess what? It's now filled back up with gold again. And it does this every day, renewable forever. This is what our ground fishery is. It's a renewable gold mine. We don't have to, to till the soil or water it or protect it from in. We don't have to do anything with it. God does it. It comes back to us every day, every year in a cycle. A gold mine worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year. This ground fishery of 32 species on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, if we're left like it was, years and years ago, like in Norway and Iceland and these places, it is worth $15 billion a year. Think of that. A muskrat falls every year, renewable, given to us. And the federal governments, where the problems lie, we know this all, I'm, I'm not going to get into but, but let me No, just no, I understand. Yeah, Go let ahead. Let me just say something. Let me just say something. Uh, the problems with the fishery when we talk about the resources being diminished and the nose and tail of the bank outside the continental shelf where foreigners are still raping and taking this migrating stock that that grows and 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 seeds itself in our in our moratorium waters inside they're still taking it it can never come back and 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 how it has affected our culture, our heritage, our fishing culture on the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's it's destroyed us. It's taken away the economic engine. And and the governments, the federal government, is responsible. It's their management uh, duty, as written in the terms of the agreement. And and look what's happened for seven years. Well, I'll tell you why is it. As Gus said uh, some time ago, why is it that these people, they're smart people, they're educated, why is it they don't listen? They don't listen to the real solutions to the problem. The real solutions come from truthful comments made by people who participate and live in this industry. They live under the fishermen, the plant workers, the, 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 the boat owners, the company owners, the people who live with the fishery. We've been telling them the truth and telling Here's the problem. Why don't they listen? I'm going to make, uh, 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 as best I can, uh, a comment as to why they don't listen. And, and please, Doctor, I'll give you about a minute because I have another okay. gentleman afterwards who well, would like I to speak Well, I can't about do it in a minute. I can't right, do it. Well, all right. Well, th uh, thank very you. Very briefly, I'll try to say this. All right. You go. You go. I'll, I'll give you about a minute and a half. in the world after nature's... Uh, destruction of storms and hurricanes. The second most powerful thing in the world is an idea. <laughs> because when a man, has, when a person has an idea and is followed with governments, it goes to war, or does, it changes the atmosphere, it changes nations, it destroys the, 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 the pristineness of, of the forest and all the rest. Well, an idea is what's in the mind of federal governments. They have an ideology. 
of how to run the fishery. And attached to that ideology is the idea of their own image. This ideology they have of protecting is really the idea of their self-image. And they can never change that idea, that ideology, because it means they have to change their self. That's the problem. And we need the federal government to understand this part about their own nature. They have to change their own ideas, ideology of themselves, in order to have a future. Hmm. Now, I, I rushed that last minute and does not explain very well, but there's no question. This is why they have not listened yep. to 70 years of people who know this resource. They don't listen because they listen I, to themselves. And if they don't I, listen to themselves, that means they end themselves. That's the end of them and who wants to have no self that's the problem that you have done Gus Etchieri, sir, Dr. Earl, a great uh, credit. Let me say, to you, him, listen. Come here, just let me add this, sir, for a second. Together. You've done it with such passion and intellect. You go ahead. Go ahead. What we One doing, thing we have to do, and Gus preached it all his life. Everybody in this fishery on the coast of Newfoundland, if you're a squidding or capelin fishing or small boat or trap inshore, outshore, crab, shrimp, big boat, no matter where you are, all of us, plant worse, anyone that lives in the fishery, we're all brothers and sisters. And some we've never done, we have to speak with one voice for this heritage and the future of this resource or we'll never get it back one voice to, to get after governments it has to be governments they have to we have to make them do it one voice we're <laughs> divided we fall divided we fall you're That's absolutely it. we've right. been fragmented and they they do what they want they have to be made to do what's right all right. I will leave it there, Dr. Earl. Great pleasure talking with you. I look forward to reading what you're, uh, you're, you're writing. And uh, I, I'll just repeat what I said a moment ago, because this is, this is what this country needs. It's the passion and the intellect and the thought of conversation, not I'm just a, conflict for the sake of it. So thank you I'm, for representing your friends so because well. Because I had two people in my life, like you're just saying, that had the passion. My father, Captain Guy Earl, who died 50 years mm -hmm. ago, was the champion of the, cod, uh, the salt fishery, and he loved the people of Newfoundland. That was his life passion. And the second one was Gus. Mm -hmm. and, and they're my mentors. They're my teachers. Yeah. Well, you had some brilliant mentors. Thank you, sir. Good to talk to you today. Thank you, Tim. God All right. That was doc Dr. Phil Earl uh, talking about Gus Etchigary. I tell you, Dave, what I'm going to do, because we've got two good calls after this, all good calls, Alistair and Ernest, we're going to take an early break so we can make sure we get uh, Alistair and Ernest to have the full allotment of time. Remember, if you want to call us, give us a ring. Uh, you want to tweet at Powers Tim or on email, openlinefvocm.com. Alistair, coming back with you after the break. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. We're going to keep talking about Gus Echegarian. and that is fine by me. Uh, lots to learn from the man. We're going to go to line two now and talk to Alistair Han. Alistair, you had some comments you'd like to make? I don't have that much to say this morning, Tim, other than this is the uh, first chance I've really uh, had to publicly uh, uh, speak about Mr. Ichiguri since his death. Um, I think Dr. Earl described him perfectly, and I'll just say ditto to that. I got to know Mr. Ichiguri in the late 90s when I was trying to, uh, oh, I was trying to get some quotas and try to save this town. And Mr. Ichiguri was really, really a, a great help. 
what a knowledge of the fishery has passed with his passing. That's what I've got to say. And really, uh, many a time Gus and me when talking, when Gus had been on the open line and so on, and I would say to him, uh, Gus, I hate to say this to you, but it sounds to me you're like Noah when he was building the ark. (laughs) No one is listening. And that was our our trademark, and sometimes when I'd answer the phone, I'd say, good day, Noah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we'd we'd laugh, but uh, there's no doubt about it, Um, Tim. He was a remarkable man and a wealth of knowledge in the fishery. And that is really, and I want to pass on my deepest condolences to Glenn and the Ichiguri families. And uh, to anyone who was a fan of Gus's and listened to him, I would strongly recommend that they pick up his book, Empty Knits. It's worth a read, Tim, and in my opinion, it's, uh, it should be a must in our school system to uh, to uh, day. And that's Alistair, just before you go, can I... Can I just ask you one question off? You said off what you said, and it's the Noah reference, and it's a wonderful one. Why do you think nobody is listening, though? What? What? I mean, that's a big, open-ended question. But why is there a deafness to wisdom? I think, <laughs> without making it too light, Tim, I think uh, a lot of Newfoundlanders today, or for a long period now, have had oil on uh, the brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, and 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 I guess the lessons that's been taught in the fishery that it's a that it's a place to go and starve to death and so on and yeah. so forth. But that wasn't and isn't the case. And uh, I just don't know why no one seems to be interested. Uh, no, I'd be on here perhaps the rest of the morning if I really. <laughs> If I really got into what I think, okay. you know, so. so well, I appreciate you offering that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, great, great to have you on and a great tribute to, to Mr. Etchigary. Thanks, Alistair. You have a good day. I'll summarize as, as little as I can. I think less government interference and this running to prey on government to cure everything that goes wrong in the fishery i think that is the reason for our demise so with that i'll say good morning there is wisdom in that there is wisdom in that alistair thank you for your call you have a good day okay you also bye all right take care um great thoughts from alistair welcome yours as well now we're going to go to ernest decker ernest uh crab and lobster are on your mind tell us yes, about sir. that. good morning sir yeah. morning nice to talk with you yeah good, not a good morning here on the west coast <laughs> rain and slop snow there you well you got all those snakes there so watch out for them that's what i'm worried about but just rains you know what we have here i have to tell you this i meant to say this in the preamble so we have what's called i think rex murphy would love this it's called the rex block hanging us oh. over us in ontario which means so unlike rex's disposition and he's a friend that it's the sun is shining and it's staying warm all week so it has to be named after another rex maybe you're getting rex's weather in the in Cornerbrook. Yes, sir. Uh, Rocky, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, good old Rocky Arbor. Love Rocky Arbor. Anyway, you go ahead. Go ahead, Ernest. You, uh, yeah, Tim, uh, Tim Power, right? Yep. You know, Tim, you know, I was just going to talk a little bit about the crab fishery. Sure. So we we started back in April the 10th, eh? so so the yep. FFRW said, but uh, said to the ASP that we could not fish for 220 a pound. There's no way possible that we could fish crab for 220 a pound. So they argue with the processors for two, for for six weeks. You know, the fishermen could not make a goal but 220 a pound. So, so actually, they said that back then the market could stand with it, with withstand 350 a pound. That's what the FAW said. So they must have knew something. So right on. So, well, then they argue about the crab prices for six weeks, and then a Friday evening for last, they said, before the long weekend, they said, okay. You can go 220 a pound. So they signed off on that with the ASP, and here we are. And they, and they say if we start catching crab there now, there's a 20% tolerance there. So they could go down to a dollar ninety a pound. Twenty say just using it to, they could go down to dollar ninety a pound. Eh? So I don't know. I don't know, uh, Tim. What's happening? So what? Because what? Well, yeah, I mean, Ernest, you know this better than I do, and I, I plead some ignorance here. I've been watching this from afar. I saw the the negotiations going back and forth. I saw the the fight over price at, at two twenty. But for the average person like me who doesn't have the depth of knowledge that you do, but has been watching this, what happened to the crab market? Because the price was much higher last year. What's mm-hmm. happened? Well, they say they got a large inventory from last year. So okay. That, so, so that's what, what Tim. That's what they say. They have, but I don't know about that. But uh, but they're saying that if we sell the crab for for, for two twenty a pound right now. It could be twenty percent there. Twenty uh, percent be you know once you finally said and done mm-hmm. could be uh, undersized crab like under four inch crab and so you could end up a dollar ninety a pound for it. So that's what they're saying there, uh, Tim. Yeah. So, but that's what I've heard uh, anyway. So we won't. We won't and and how are, are, are so are, are people people are harvesting the crab now? They are well, out yeah, there. It seems like, there... like they're started. They're now uh, after six weeks of uh, of battling over, and then they finally settled on. Why they settle? I don't know. Right. Why does six weeks seem like six weeks down the pipe to me? Right, so, so. And what about lobster? You had some comment on lobster. Yes, yeah, okay. We uh, lobsters. Now we started off there that four weeks ago, but we never got it because we started a little later. So they started off right. at fourteen thirty-seven a pound. Because the FFW wow. said that the market was really, really strong for lobsters this year. So they opened up at the sale, but the seasonal uh, week or so before we, and they end up at fourteen thirty-seven a pound. So. So anyway, we started. We were down. We started a couple weeks later, I think, and we went down to eight forty-five a pound. So we we fished two days, and then and then the processors said they they couldn't afford to pay eight forty-five a pound. So we had to save them up to the following week, and uh, so we saved our lobsters, put them in, sunk them on the bottom, fished and sunk them on the bottom, and sold them the following week for what seven seven twenty-six a pound. So. So we had these bulk of lobsters saved up now. So they, so they, they waited a few days, so the prices changed every week. So they, you know, they gained over a buck a pound on them right there, bang, right? So just like that, eh? So, so the, uh, how long's the lobster season? When does it end? Well, we got eight weeks there, uh, Tim. We got eight, eight weeks. weeks. Eight weeks on this coast of Northern Peninsula. But most of the areas uh, the, uh, around Newfoundland got ten weeks. So, so but we were cut back for, cut back uh, for... For, for the um, keep the landings and uh, for the 
keep the landings off that eh? so very good and, and again pardon the ignorance here but again I, I know there's lots of people who listen to open line and listen to people like you Ernest, who are well informed about this and, and are trying to basically understand the economics of the fishery so as it comes so you could keep a crab inventory thus keeping the prices down if you buy the argument that you're being given but with lobster can you hold an inventory but i assume you either catch it and sell it right away or you catch it and it's uh, fr- free frozen uh, packed elsewhere can you hold a lobster inventory is that we part can, of this but the reason that we don't keep tim we don't hold them because just use an example the prices is coming down so just use an example if i hold my lobster for six weeks um, the price might be down to five dollars a pound so i'd be losing by by keeping them as well the price has changed from week to week every wednesday morning there's a okay. new price on on lobster so so we get i tell you what we get now tim we get 70 percent up the boston market for lobster okay but and is that our biggest market here we send it to no, boston okay. having said that tim the bulk of our lobsters goes to china Okay. And your and Asian and European countries, right? So what I'm saying is that we're really we really, really don't know what we're getting for lobster. So okay. I know my my friend that truck lobsters across the Gulf and uh, he, he he put two loads in, in, in Boston, he put the other eight other eight loads near Halifax Airport for to go go overseas. So we're really, really not getting. We don't know what we're getting. We're not getting seventy percent of the market for Tim for for lobsters. So, so I know we're not, and all other fishermen know we're not, right? So I don't know Tim what's going around with the system, but it certainly ain't working. So just yep. use, so just you and Tim also uh, in in Nova Scotia the landings was way down this year this past winter, mm. and so. So landings was way down, like 40, 50 percent. The landings in Nova Scotia. So, so one would think that price would be on increase, but that that is not the case. And uh, what do they attribute the low landings to in Nova Scotia? What have you heard about that? Uh, about, about well, well, down by 40 percent of what they were last year. So, so. And is that just there's a lack of supply? Is there something happening in the ecosystem? Have they given you any indication why the landings were down? Mm-hmm. Is it uh, demand? We what did they what they had a prime year before that a very good okay. year before it and they say that they, they say oh, well I don't know for sure Tim but they say that that lobsters is moving north eh? but but we have no no uh, science work to prove that eh? so but uh, you know everything else season eight Tim boy that uh, you know that uh, lobster everything is going down uh, in the seafood industry the price is going down on everything in the seafood industry but not for the not for the harbor for, for the harvester but not for the consumer but I'm gonna tell you one yes thing, that's an excellent point there and it's just yeah. stop on that one because yeah I mean, I, I assume seafood is factored into the inflationary prices that uh, we hear about. And the last time I heard about the price of food, it was still up significantly. I certainly know I don't eat fish because I have a, a shellfish allergy. But when I go into a grocery store and I do look at it, it's not cheap. Um, no, no. So you would like to see a benefit at the end of the line for the consumer if the harvester is not making any money. I, I can guarantee you, Tim, when you go in the store in February in St. John's, I'm going to guarantee yeah. you. I guarantee you that crab prices won't be. You won't see no low crab prices in this January, February, in any of these food chain stores. Right? So, so you know, so they're going to buy them for two twenty a pound this year, but they ain't, they ain't, they're not going to be sold for for five. They're more like twenty five dollars a pound. That's just the way it is, right? So, wow, that's crazy. Uh, so anyway, I got to leave it there, Ernest. I. 
Sorry, don't mean to cut you. I didn't mean to be rude there. Cut you off, but got to leave it there. Appreciate the call. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say, you know, Tim, you know, baloney, nothing else is coming down in, uh, coming down in prices <laughs> except the seafood for fish harvesters, right? Yeah, well, I, and I, you know, I don't want to be hard on the Newfoundland bologna industry, but uh, seafood is better for you than bologna, is my recollection, though. I, who, who doesn't love a good piece of fried bologna? Oh, I like seafood, uh, but, but I see, but, but Tim, the price is not coming down on nothing in the stores. But oh, I, just I know. Fish, but, but you're, but, 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 the, but the consumer, that's who's going to pay. You know what I mean? Oh, okay, yeah. But there's we a all large are. margin in, in the price what Arbus is getting and, and what's selling in the, in the, in the stores, right? So. All right, got to leave it there, Ernest. they gone wrong there. Yeah, no, the, the system's all askew. I appreciate your call. Thank you for your call today. Yes, sir, you have a nice day. Yep. All right, take care. Thank that you. was Ernest Decker. All right, uh, time for a break here. When we come back on Open Line, we got lots of space for calls. We've got a bunch coming up later, but you want to pop up now? you got something to say, give Dave a ring. I'm Tim Powers, back with you shortly. Welcome back to Open Line. Glad to be with you here. Tim Powers in this morning. Uh, we have had a long and healthy, good discussion about Gus Echigari so far this morning, and I'm happy to keep that going. We've been talking about crab and lobster and the fish market, and if you're like me, the broad fish markets, there's more than one, of course, um, and you want to understand it more at a base level. Give us a call. Uh, we hear a lot about it in the news. I know some people just get a little bit tone deaf, not because it's in, not important, but because when the numbers start getting thrown around, it gets a bit confusing. Uh, so if you have something you'd like to talk about there, please do it. Listen, because um, you are listening, because you have called into this program and have tuned it in. What about homelessness? I see our question of the day is around homelessness. And it is, do you believe the province is making progress in addressing homelessness? 88% of people say no. If you ask that question all across the country, you'd say the same, you'd hear the same thing. And that ought to be problematic for us. Every major federal political party are talking about this issue. Um, if you have people who are of a certain age, probably between 20 and 40, and they're looking to buy their first home, in uh, in bigger cities, they're finding that very difficult at home, uh, where you guys all are, where I wish I was today. That's also a problem. Why is it that homelessness has become such a big issue? And have we changed the way we're thinking about it? I know we have a ton of advocates in Newfoundland and Labrador in the city who have uh, thought about this, who have argued about this. I welcome you to call this morning because this is what I hear more often when I go about and talk. Uh, talk to my younger colleagues at work and elsewhere, people worried about can they afford a home? And if they get the home, do they become, as we all have from time to time, become house poor? What does, how does that influence the decisions they make about going forward um, in the investments they make? It's, it's big issues. How do we create space quickly? Sometimes one of the challenges around homelessness and creating things like social housing is finding the actual space. Uh, and getting three levels of government to come together. So look, um, here today, uh, just, just from our news, uh, an Ontario-based group recently completed an extensive homeless project across the country, including St. John's and Happy Valley Goose Bay, and found a number of similar trends involving rural and remote homelessness. The Lawson Health Retreat Institute of London, Ontario, held a forum in Goose Bay uh, last week and discussed their events uh, there, and they're doing the same thing in St. John's today. 
today. Goose Bay, I know this. My dad used to live there. Has been facing growing challenges with a transient homeless population. One of the researchers uh, who was part of the project said it is not unique to the area. Um, migration pat patterns were interrupted during COVID is one of the things that they cite. And uh, she recognizes also in Northern Territories, there, are, um, there has always been a, a shortage of actual space because a lot of the Northern communities initially were built for industrial settlement. And as a consequence of that, they only powered up uh, enough homes to suit the people who were coming in to, to do the work. What are your thoughts on homelessness? I would love to get a discussion going on all of this. You think about it, right? Some of the social determinants of health, and they are real. You can dispute them. And yes, I'm somebody who's conservative leaning, but I believe in the social determinants of health. You need safety. You need security. You need food. You need shelter. If you don't have those things, there's going to be a downstream impact. It isn't just like the old conservative trope of you got to work hard. I still believe in working hard. I still believe in being disciplined. I still believe in doing everything you can and not expecting somebody else to do it for you. But there are other factors that intervene in all of that. So if you have ideas on this or questions on this or want to get into it with me on this, give me a call. I, I look at this particular city that I am in right now, Ottawa. And here in the nation's capital, there are homelessness problems. I see more people um, and hear of more people that are spending time in shelters and looking for places and spaces to stay. And they're staying there because they don't have a home to call their own. And that is problematic, uh, to be sure. That is something we should be discussing. Now, I want to know if you want to discuss this, and I'm talking because you're not calling, so if you call, I don't have to talk, and I, you know, I don't mind talking. I get paid to talk, but one thing that is on my mind, and I'd love to get the reaction here. I know Colin, who was a regular caller, always pays attention to this in, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and that is all these stories here in Ottawa and that seem to be an obsession of the national media, and I'm sure Patty has had occasion to talk about it, but electoral interference, alleged and real. Apparently it's real. So David Johnson, the former governor general, special rapporteur, as he was called um, by the prime minister, has released this report. Lots of controversy around inquiry or no inquiry and, and all of those things, and you can have a view on that. I think there probably should have been an inquiry, but there wasn't. Anyway... We can argue till we're blue in the face around all of that. But is this an issue that's penetrating your life? It is an obsession, and probably it should be of the national media at the moment because we have seen doc, uh, David Johnson, he's a doctor, a PhD, uh, has uh, come forward and pointed out that there were attempts to influence the elections, that the Chinese and the Russians in particular are very engaged in all of this, that there is most certainly a concerted effort, and they vary in style based on how state actors themselves operate. By state actors, I mean countries, but how does that all play out? Well, we can get we can get into all of that, but we now have a call. Charlie, you want to talk about wild fires and the batteries. Okay, steady state batteries. I like the line on that. How are you, Charlie? Oh, not doing too bad. Nice, nice to hear you on again. Nice to talk to you. Yes, 
said, we've been we've been envious of of the temperatures in in Western Canada and and Nova Scotia or Newfoundland of quite a few weeks. And uh, looking at the stories there this morning. Uh, Nova Scotia is going through several wildfires now, and Alberta has been through it and still going through it, and uh, B.C. as far as I know. And I'm just wondering what it's going to take to wake people up. I've, I've said this to you many times before. Uh, it seems like uh, the last figure was that half of Canadians didn't consider this uh, climate crisis to be uh, of urgent uh, importance. And uh, I don't know. I look at the school curricula, and they've been pretty well largely impervious to uh, any urgency in the curriculum uh, to, to deal with this. So lots of quadratic equations. I would say if we spend <laughs> half the time, half the time on, on, on uh, uh, the climate thing that we spend on algebra, uh, 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 we'd be much further ahead, but uh, they haven't picked that up yet, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> it's the power structures that want to keep us ignorant, I guess. Charlie, where were you? Where were you thirty years ago when I had forty years ago when I had to do algebra? I, I fully agree with you. I hated algebra. Apparently, it was helpful. I don't know how, but I, I know it's helpful. Anyway, keep going. I, I got news for you. Most people still hate it, and they push <laughs> through it, and they can't figure out why the hell they have to do it. But anyway, I've been following students since I left the teaching thing about. 25 right. years ago, and uh, I can tell you, the, 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 the curriculum hasn't changed a hell of a lot. Uh, luckily, they've got a few teachers here and there that, that'll bring stuff up, but as far as the system-wide change, Tim, is just not happening. We're, we're, we, we, we still have the old-style industrial curriculum acting like there's nothing happening in the world, and uh, it, it's, it's kind of saddening in a way, but I, I, I found the ability to laugh at it because it's so ridiculous, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, Solid-state batteries, uh, do you know anything about them? Uh, are these the ones Stellantis makes, or are these uh, others? No, you go ahead, explain. Okay, uh, uh, the Chinese are, are apparently big in this. I've been for now two or three years. These okay. batteries are of a different design, they're electric batteries. They'll have a range of 1,000 kilometers or, or more. Uh, they are a little bit more expensive uh, than the others, but economies of scale, of course, will bring that down. So I thought that was quite a breakthrough to, to I read the story this weekend about them, you know? Yeah, it, it, well, and it, it's funny, right? I, I, did, I was talking about this in the Ottawa report this morning. We're making a big bet in Canada on batteries uh, and electric vehicles, and that's probably not a bad bet to make. But how big do we met, make the bet? My reference to Stellantis, as you will know, you follow the news, is there's this negotiation going on between Canada, Ontario, and Stellantis right now over yes, will I'm there be more inducements in Brampton or not. What do you think on that? Like, how far do we go here? Because, you know, arguably, Hibernia doesn't happen without some uh, federal intervention in the day by Brian Mulroney and John Crosby and others. Uh, well, uh, Muskrat Falls doesn't happen without loan guarantees from Stephen Harper. What, what is your take on what we should do with the battery business and the EV business? Well, we've got the same problem as Europe has been uh, criticizing Biden for with the Inflation Act. He's, of course, yeah. given a lot of subsidy to 
down south for all these new projects to keep up with the Chinese and so on. And, of course, the Americans are going to like that, more jobs than that. But then that puts pressure on uh, Canada and Europe, the European nations, to do the same. And uh, if we don't, we kind of lose these uh, these companies to, to, to Biden's uh, pr- program. Yeah. And... Uh, when they gave it to Volkswagen, of course, uh, the, the, the new company said, if you're going to give them billions, well, if we're going to stay here, you're going to give it to us. So we're caught between a rock and a hard place. I would say we have no choice, yeah. you know. And, it, and, and certainly that looks to be the case. And, you know, you can't be mad at the company in this circumstance. No. They're doing what they're supposed to do to benefit themselves and their shareholders. And we can call that corporate greed and the like. But if governments are willing to pay, yeah, such such is as it goes. Anyway, got about 30 seconds or a minute if you want to add anything else, Charlie. Yeah, I'd like to say it's good to see out in Alberta the, 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 the it's no longer automatically conservative to finally waking <laughs> up that there's other things besides oil and gas like like trees and like breathing good air and so on and uh, hopefully the NDP will uh, make inroads there again well you want to stay for after the news because my colleague David Coletto from Abacus is going to take us through uh, the poll he did last night and the uh, the what he thinks may happen in the Alberta election it will be fascinating like I said no minority possible it's either the NDP or the UCP because there's no real third parties yeah. as always Charlie good to talk to you thank okay. you Quad- quadratic equations anybody oh uh, you're giving me PTSD buddy oh god <laughs> thank you okay Tim Take care. All right, time for our first news break here on VOCM News. And when I we come back, and I'll come back too, David Coletto will be here to talk about the Alberta election. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Okay, welcome back. Tim Powers in for Patty today and tomorrow. Now, Alberta, Alberta, Alberta. I know we have listeners in Alberta. We have lots of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who still go back and forth to Alberta or who've resettled in Alberta. So who better to talk about Alberta than my colleague and friend, the executive chair of Abacus Data and a one-time Alberta resident, Dr. David Coletto. David, how are you? I'm well, Tim. Good morning. Good to talk to you. Dave, simple task yeah. for you, David. Explain Alberta. <laughs> no, I won't, yeah. I, won't, I won't make you do that this morning. Except it, You've been polling all through this election. You, as I said, have lived there. You understand the province as well as anybody who's outside of it, not currently living there. Today is voting day. You did a poll yesterday. Where do things stand right now as we people start voting in Alberta? Yeah, I mean it's um it's it's close. It's probably closer his, than it has been historically uh, in Alberta because um except for an interlude of of the of Rachel Notley in government from 2015 and the NDP to 2019, um a conservative party of some sort has governed, you know, Alberta for almost 50 years. So the fact that we are even somewhat unsure, although it's it's I think the polling is suggesting the UCP and Daniel Smith, the current incumbents should likely win today, um, there's still some doubt. And that in itself is a remarkable thing in Alberta. And I think this campaign um, is starting to suggest that, that politics in Alberta is changing and that the, you know, the, the hegemony of, of conservative rule um, can't be, you just can't assume that's going to happen. And, and when a candidate like Daniel Smith, who, um, again, will likely be premier after this election, 
but for many Albertans um, is, is a little too controversial and some of her views are are unacceptable and that's put the NDP in a place where, where there's a small chance but it could win it could win this evening. Yeah, let's dig into Daniel Smith a little bit. Again, for the audience who pay attention to politics, you will know who she is. For those who have a, who, who are listening for the first time, I mean, Daniel Smith was a political party leader in Alberta. She was part of a unification movement about a decade ago uh, that uh, started the path towards the creation of the UCP. Um, she was not successful in her previous political life. She has been a long time uh, and popular popular radio host in Alberta and sometimes when you're a radio host as the guy with the mic uh, now you, uh, you 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 could be a little bit more performative and perhaps outlandish to spark discussion but this has caused Daniel Smith some trouble some of her previous comments have so you did a poll actually this weekend David or, or part of your poll looked at would the UCP fare differently mm-hmm. without Daniel Smith what did you learn in that well, we learned that, that they would. They'd probably do much better. Um, and, and you know, this wouldn't be much of discussion about how this election would turn out, that the, the UCP would, would get close to the vote that Jason Kenney got in 2019. They'd win a big majority. Um, the NDP would do okay in form of opposition. But, but it wouldn't come down to, you know, the handful of seats that it, that it might tonight. And I think it reflects, as you said, um, for, for many Albertans who uh, most Albertans see themselves as, as big C conservatives, they voted conservative their whole life. Um, but but past comments and, and even some decisions that Daniel Smith made while she was premier um, have have caused a lot of people to, to reflect on whether she's the best choice. I think ultimately, though, um, you know, if, if there's an internal conflict with some Albertans, right, their their natural inclination to vote conservative with a discomfort with some of the things Danielle Smith has done and the fact that she's supported by, there's this organization called Take Back Alberta, which is a very conservative populist um, sort of organization that's been trying to nominate specific candidates. And, and, you know, they claim had some some influence over electing Danielle Smith leader of the party in the first place. So that, that rubs some people in Alberta the wrong way. And, and so there's this internal conflict between voting for, what they normally would, and then there's also uh, some risk in their minds in voting NDP. Um, and so, for many Albertans, there's no—and this is often the case in politics—perfect choice. Um, but it's really about, and this election's been framed around who's the riskier option. Yeah. And both sides have been making the case that, you know, uh, the other side is more risky, and, and so it's up to Albertans, to, I think, to make that choice today. Using that analogy, let's talk about the NDP for a second. So, as you pointed out in your last poll done, uh, released yesterday, that ran until yesterday, uh, you have the UCP at 49, the NDP at 48. How have the NDP, in a way, uh, to use your phrase, de-risked themselves that they are getting at this point 48% of the popular support in that poll and are in a position to win? Yeah, well, one thing they've done is they've consolidated all if – if you look at everybody who didn't vote conservative last time, They've, they've more or less brought everybody together. There was a, a third party called the Alberta Party. They still exist. They're only running about, I think, 12 to 15 candidates in Alberta. So only a portion of ridings uh, are going to have a Alberta Party candidate. So they've brought together everyone who's not conservative pretty pretty well. Um, and then in the end, they've spoken to what I would describe as more of the progressive conservatives in Alberta and said, look, y- you know, lend me your vote. 
uh, something Jack Layton said in 2011 to a lot of Canadians. Like, lend me your vote. I know you're not a new Democrat. You may never vote for me again. But if you vote for me, we can we can stop Danielle Smith. And that's worked to, an, to a degree. But what's happened, I think, is, um, you know, and this is such a unique election in that you have a former premier in Rachel Notley yep. running against the current premier. And so her record, um, Rachel Notley's record, has been a, a part of this debate. And during the, the, the actual leaders debate, it almost felt like um, the incumbent was Rachel Notley, not Danielle Smith. And so she's not only had to, Rachel Notley's not, not only had to defend her own record when she was in government, but had to make the case that, you know, it's now the time for change. So it's been very complicated. And I think the NDP, in my view, um, will get close. But I don't think uh, if, you know, have done enough to to convince people that they're 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 a safe, um, acceptable alternative to to the UCP and the United Conservatives. And, and I think that's why they'll likely fall short tonight. Two last questions for you. First one is, what should people be watching for tonight as results come in? If, if Newfoundlanders and Labradorians want to stay up to 11 o'clock in Labrador and 11.30 on the island, um, yeah. Calgary's been talked about a lot, results in Calgary. What are you going to be watching for? What should people who are interested in this, who may take it in tonight, be looking for? Yeah, it's going to be all about Calgary. I mean, what happens in other parts of the province are important, but, um, you know, the polls are all saying Calgary's the close battleground. The NDP need to win almost every seat in Calgary in order to pull off uh, a win. They're likely going to sweep Edmonton. The UCP is likely going to sweep most of of the smaller communities and, and rural parts of Alberta. So it all comes down to Calgary. So watch that carefully. If you're seeing, um, you know, sort of an orange wave, um, taking a number of Calgary ridings, that might be indicative of a really good night for the NDP. If those ridings stay blue and conservative, um, then then that's a signal that uh, the polls have been right and um, the NDP won't be able to pull this off. All right, the last question, the question I'm sure you've had at infinitum, and I will add to hmm. the, uh, the, the ongoing list of, of uh, people who've asked you the same query. What have you seen or are seeing or could see, how's that, uh, in this election that has an influence on national politics and national results? Well, I think, I think there's a lesson here for, for everybody uh, at the federal level, and I think the main one is, um, you know, even in a place like Alberta, which people assume is deeply conservative, you know, will vote conservative no, no matter what, that when you go outside of the mainstream, and I'm, and I'm talking mainly about Pierre Polyev here, there, there may be a lesson that if you position yourself as being, you know, too radical, too aggressive, um, you might lose some people people you, you thought you'd never lose. And so I think that will be one lesson to see, um, you know, whether that perhaps changes um, his, his perspective. And, and then I think the second one is, you know, ultimately people are, are really, they, they, they care about specific issues. And when you look at the top issues in Alberta, they're the same as they are nationally, the cost of living, um, healthcare, and the economy. And so whether you're in Newfoundland and Labrador, whether you're in Alberta, I think there's a, there's a common set of issues that politicians need to to be able to to connect with and i don't think either of the two main parties have fully connected on those which is why we see such a a tight race so those would be my lessons today and then how it might affect federal politics 
uh, going forward. Uh, all right. Well, I've I've never been to a David Coletto class, but I do know we have. You are a man of class, and we have a lot of David Coletto um, students who come to our place of work, and they're they're great students. So you're usually on the money, Doctor Coletto. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, my friend. Thanks for having me. Take care, Ken. All right. Thanks. That was Dr. David Cleto of uh, Abacus Data watching the election art tonight. All right. Time for a break. If you want to talk about that, give us a call. What you think is happening in Alberta, what it might mean for Newfoundland and Labrador. If you don't care, call me about something else. That's what Open Line is for. Back after this. Well, welcome back. We're now going to move to the important issue of restorative justice. And uh, First Light is a group here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I believe we have on the line Dr. Dorothy Vanderlein from Memorial University. Are you there, Dr. Vanderlein? Yeah, it's Vandering. Sorry, <laughs> Vandering. I have one bad ear. I, I need to fix that. My apologies, yeah. Doctor. Yeah, and and actually, I'm with an uh, organization at the Faculty of Education called um, Relationships First: Restorative Justice in Newfoundland and Labrador. And the event that I want to talk about today is in collaboration with Mialpakuk First Nation, First okay. Light, and the Faculty of Education. Well, thank you for correcting me. I, I would have liked to have been a student in your class. I would not have made those errors. I appreciate it. Thank you quite sincerely. That's okay. It's okay to make errors. Oh, I make a lot of them. Anyway, go ahead, doctor. All right. So I, I'm just calling. We have an event on Wednesday and Thursday that's um, very unique, very innovative. Um, it follows up on an event that we had in November 2021, um, that we called Two-Eared Listening for Deeper Understanding, Restorative Justice in Newfoundland and Labrador. And um, this event is actually called um, The Elders Speak, Two-Eyed mm-hmm. Seeing, and Two-Eared Listening. And um, we're bringing together the originators of Two-Eyed Seeing and Two-Eared Listening to have a conversation. So Two-Eyed Seeing um, um, came through Elder Albert Marshall from Eskazoni in mm-hmm. um, Nova Scotia and Chief Michelle Joe from Meopakuk First Nation. He coined the term Two-Eared Listening. And so um, on Wednesday evening, we have the two of them together um, having a conversation, and that will be at the D.F. Cook Music Hall. And um, and then on Thursday in the afternoon, we have a gathering called All My Relations, and it's intergenerational. Mm -hmm. And at that event, we have a number of uh, activities for Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, as well as a reading by Elder Marshall on Walking Together, his new uh, picture book for young children, and Chief Miss L. Joe will do a reading or a talk about um, the book My Indian and some of the other work he's doing. And then there's going to be Indigenous games and mingling with the elders and having tea and so on. And then Thursday evening, we are really pleased to offer the Beotic story, uh, What Are We Hearing, What Are We Seeing, it's called. And this um, Beotic story is an hour-long documentary um, that's been produced by Chris Aylward, uh, who is local Mm -hmm. here. And that um, video is going to be followed by an elders circle uh, response where we're going to have uh, four or five elders uh, from Newfoundland um, and Labrador uh, responding to the video, the Beothic story. So we're really excited about this event. This is a once in a lifetime experience uh, to bring um, these two elders together mm-hmm. in particular for this uh, really important conversation, which will have and can have real significant 
um, impact for society today. So, yeah, um, let, can I pick up on that? Because, sorry, doctor, yeah. to interrupt you, because no, look, no. My, my educational background, they did let me go to university, terrifyingly, and I have two graduate degrees that focused on the um, uh, the relocation of the Inu in, in Labrador. Oh. And look, uh, so, and, and I worked at Indigenous Affairs, and I fully oh, wow. um, appreciate and recognize the power of restorative justice. So, I just, maybe if you could elaborate on that, your last comment, because I think that's important. There are people maybe listening who, perhaps don't recognize how this can benefit them and benefit all of us and the whole concept of restorative justice the i fully get the two eye two eyed seeing the two eared listening is about learning and growing and recognizing and respecting but maybe if you give us a, a couple of minutes on why restorative justice could be so important to all of us yeah, that's a really great question. So one of the things, um, I've been involved with restorative justice in the field of education for about 20 years now. And um, I've always known that, um, you know, the roots of restorative justice come from Indigenous cultures, uh, where in, uh, different Indigenous nations and peoples have really held on to that holistic way of of um, being and knowing uh even through, you know, all of the efforts of genocide and so on. And so it's been in the last uh, 10 years or so since I've come to Newfoundland that I've really um, been able to dig into, you know, the essence of what restorative justice is and what this means for all of us. So restorative justice, many people would, would think immediately that it's about um, you know, uh, resolving harm. Mm -hmm. When harm happens or there's difficulties, then you bring together people and um, they have conversations to work through the challenges that they've experienced in one way or another. But restorative justice is is much, much bigger than that because in order for bring, to bring people together, you really have to have a culture that um, is willing to understand the depth of relationship. And so um, that is something that is so foundational to how, um, you know, Mialpakuk or Flat Bay or, or the Innu Nation or the Inuit Nations um, in the province, you know, they embody that and they have held on to that, that, you know, deep interconnectedness. And so from my perspective, and we've been working with government as well and have um, significant funding support from the Department of Justice, um, and there is a real longing to understand how to move from simply consulting Indigenous people to actually creating spaces for Indigenous people to, um, to lead and to um, model for us what we need in society today, you know, whether that's climate change, whether that's resource development, um, whether that's addressing, mm -hmm. you know, harm, any any aspect of society. We, uh, as non-Indigenous people, have been really schooled in an mm -hmm. individualism and a capitalism. And what we're discovering, of course, is that that is not working out too well. And so there's this just real um, need to understand the interconnectedness and the wholeness of society. And so we've got... We've got um, the ear of many people now, um, and yeah, so that's that's how I would explain it. That restorative justice is about understanding the the deep interconnectedness of who we are as people with our environments. 
Yeah, and I, I would just say this, and uh, it'll generate a reaction, um, not from you, but I mean from the audience. People sometimes write this off as woke, okay? There are a lot of things oh, yeah. that you could just, yeah, you know this well, doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I come at this from a conservative perspective. This isn't woke. This is substantive and real, and I've seen it work in different places yeah. uh, across the country. Uh, so just remind us one more time, please, where we could go if we want to see and partake and listen. Yeah, so first of all, I would just simply say um, people can look at the website www.2eardlistening.com, and all the information is there, but we're at the DF Cook um a music hall for the first event on Wednesday night from 6.30 till 9. Um, and then uh, Thursday afternoons from 1 to 4 in Pippi Park at the Fluvarium. And then Thursday evening, it's um, back in the Suncor Music Hall um, a, on on campus. And we are asking people to register because there's, there's limited seating for each of these, and we want to make sure that we have everything we need. Um, so um, if people could register, that would be best. And if uh, there's very uh, minimal cost, $10 for each event. But if anybody has issues with that, um, they can simply email us and okay. um, we can help out. Well, thank you. Good luck. Uh, I hope you get some great attendance because people who go will will benefit fr from it. And uh, again, my apologies for for the screw up in the beginning, but uh, you uh, you you hit a home run with what you're offering. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Powers, and wish you were here to take this in. Thank you. Hopefully next time. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Uh, time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Back with more of your calls. We've had some great conversations this morning, and I know with half a show left to go, there's more to come. I'm Tim Powers. Back with you shortly. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to Open Line. We're going to get back into talking about the fishery, and we should be, as uh, as uh, as has been indicated by many, it could be a even more valuable industry than it is, and it's already worth over a billion dollars in the province, um, to help guide us through and talk about uh, crab and uh, some other species. We've got Jason Sping Spingle, the uh, Secretary Treasurer of the F FAW. Jason, how are you? Good morning, Tim. It's nice to speak with you again. Yeah, we've spoken before, I recall, and uh, good yeah. good to talk to you. I've been watching from afar the the crab wars, if I can uh, call them that, as they've uh, they've played out. But unfortunately, it seems to be more more losers than winners with a deflated price. I mean, Jason, just as we get into this, and maybe I can ask you to take this frame of mind to it, and I'll tell you the frame of mind. You may have heard me speaking earlier. A lot of people have a great respect for for your union and for the fishing industry, but when they hear these discussions, I think they get lost a little bit in the details around pricing and and discussions over distribution. As we're talking about this this morning, can you, because you did this well before, can you contextualize as to why this should matter to me or we, the listener, who doesn't have the same knowledge of, of the fishery as you do? Can we try to do that uh, to see if we can drive the point mm -hmm. home around some of the challenges out there? Yeah, well, you know, basically... Uh 
guess to that, to that larger point and very significant point, and I appreciate the question, is, uh, and you mentioned a number, uh, the last two years, the fishery's mm-hmm. been worth over a billion dollars in a prov- you know, in our province, which has right. a little over a half a million people, and most of that wealth uh, is, uh, all of that wealth is brand new dollars. You know, and really? uh, okay. we can all agree whether it's fish or mining or forestry yep. or that the new dollars are uh, are are most important in most cases to mm-hmm. to establishing uh, an economic base. And uh, you know, our coastal communities depend on the fishery almost exclusively. And uh, you know, and that's that's the challenge. I mean, we the thing is. The people buy our wonderful products in countries like the United States of America, uh, Japan, China, to name some of the bigger ones. Some of our products go to Europe, uh, worldwide for sure. Uh, Snow crab, uh, the United States will certainly be the largest uh, consumer in in Japan, and that's been impacted by by Russian, increased Russian supply. But, you know, we're looking at uh, this year, and no one, and I've asked many, many people this question, and people talk about, you know, people say there are ups and downs in the fishery. I said absolutely there are ups and downs in the fishery. But we had an unexpected two-thirds decrease in the primary species in our province. We have 54,000 tons this year. It's the largest snow crab fishery in the world. And uh, the, the money coming in directly to harvesters and the primary producers is down by uh, two-thirds. So that type of a um, shock is uh, basically there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be, uh, for a number of different reasons, hundreds, thousands of people that are going to be negatively impacted for sure. And, uh, you know, the season is underway. As was stated, our negotiating committee, after hundreds of hours of of work, reluctantly signed on to get this fishery going. But uh, that's not to say there's going to be problems. So I was going to touch on the shrimp, but I will. Yeah, yeah, don't go ahead. You can can add to the just just before we move off though the the snow crab again. Just and thank you. That was excellent in terms of of painting uh, a full picture on it. So you're getting uh, 220, and I think the gentleman on before said it could go as low as 190. Per pound, um, is that? I mean, what what kind of income are what, what what kind of percentage decrease of income is happening then for harvesters? And is there enough you're, you're there just to pay the operating expensive yeah. expenses? So, oh, thanks for that. Sorry. Yeah, no. So, fuel uh, compared to five years ago is more than double. Bait uh, is uh, squid for bait, for example, was uh, I would say it was in the dollar fifty range five years ago. We're talking about. Uh, 250 for squid. So as a couple of harvesters have uh, called to tell me, uh, debate is now uh, uh, per pound is is more. You know, it's more than I'm going to get for a pound of crab. But a couple of wow. issues, I guess, on the crab. On, on, sure. on like I said, the fisheries underway. Uh, I'll touch on this dollar uh, ninety, the 20 percent tolerance. Yep. So basically. Crab, uh, what, what's been deemed premium crab is a four-inch carapace, the, the body width, right? And uh, if I, I put it in, in context, I guess that's almost 102 millimeters, four inches. Legal crab, because that's what's on the condition of license, is 95 millimeters. So 102 was considered a premium crab, and most crab in most fisheries is, is you know, it's usually over 80% that are, are that okay. size, right? And 
we've had in the crab schedule for years and years and years that as long as you were under 20%, you didn't lose any uh, value. But if you went, for example, to 25%, then on 5%, you will get 30, 30 cents less. Uh, we did not negotiate anything different. The schedule was, wasn't negotiated this year, and all of a sudden, uh, and that's what we're you know, going to maintain, that ASP, the buyers, that's the word that's out there, is saying that, nope, we, we asked for, uh, we referenced all crab, uh, less than uh, the premium would be paid on a pound-for-pound basis. All I can say to all of our members out there is that if your buyer uh, uh, deducts you pound for pound that doesn't adhere to the 20% tolerance, then uh, let us know, let your staff rep know, and uh, these are the staff reps are the people on the ground representing the harvester directly, mm-hmm. and we will file a grievance and go through the arbit- uh, arbitration procedure. In the meantime, in the meantime, we're, we're looking at other avenues to deal with this, and what I can say is this particular um, this particular issue was dealt is dealt with in DFOs. Now DFO doesn't have anything to do directly with the price, but the issue is high grading. So if you've got uh, uh, if you've got and this was maintained many many years ago, this was highlighted that if you've got uh, a different price for for uh, larger animals, and you're going to have people discarding smaller ones. Uh, that that's a concern for the health of resource. So we're, we've already talked to DFO about that, and we'll see where it goes. Okay. The other issue on crab uh, yep. uh, is um, Royal Greenland. So Royal Greenland is, yep. a, is, a, is a Danish-based company. Uh, they came in here several years ago. They're affiliated with Quincy Fisheries. And, you know, there was, there was concern about a... Uh, overseas company, offshore company coming in and getting involved, and uh, you know they're they're here in the province, and uh, I guess to get specifically to this issue right now, uh, more than a week ago when this crab fishery started, the less than 50 foot fleet, you want to call them small boats or inshore compared yeah, to the over 50 foot fleet fishing near the coast, were basically told that they wouldn't be that Royal Greenland Quincy wouldn't be buying their product until June 11th. Uh, while other boats that are selling to them are basically on a load-and-go basis. I'll get right to the point that I called the minister last Thursday, uh, last week, uh, the the provincial minister, Minister Bragg. He reached out to Royal Greenland, and the word I got back from the minister, and I even re-clarified, was that they were going to start buying as of tomorrow. The report I have this morning... Uh, from the less than 50-foot fleet is that they're not doing that. They're uh, referencing June 11th. All I can say is this is totally um, uh, unfair. It, 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 it is, uh, it's directed at the, uh, the less than 50-foot fleet, and people aren't going to tolerate that. That's all I can say on the crab. So those are the okay. two issues there. Right now, we, we knew it was going to be a difficult year. When you tell people's incomes are going to be cut by two-thirds, yep. you know it's not going to be easy. And these added elements, uh, you know, a late start uh, is going to be uh, – we, we knew it was going to be easy, but uh, the, the companies – Association of Seafood Producers are adding uh, uh, more disruptive elements that that are that aren't necessary in our view. So, and uh, all right, uh, we got about three minutes, four minutes. You can talk about shrimp if you like, uh, Jason. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for that. So what I would say is uh, the uh, and it goes back, I guess, to the premier. Uh, and I did want to acknowledge the premier personally intervening in the crab 
and uh, and must say, listening to uh, both sides and helping to get an agreement on crab. But for shrimp, uh, clearly on shrimp, there's shrimp caught all over the province. But there's a fleet on the northern peninsula. In my previous job as staff rep, I, do, I represented that fleet for over 20 years. They have nothing else to catch right now. They're waiting on a redfish decision. Uh, without that, I think there's going to be very, very difficult for that fleet. But they're based from port all the way down to Cooks Harbor, right in the Strait of Belle Isle there. They support three uh, processing plants in port uh, Anchor Point, and St. Anthony. And right now, the uh, panel picked a price of $1.08, which the buyers know is not feasible. Yeah, someone might say that our price was too high, the price that didn't get selected, but we were just going on the marketing reports. Point okay. being is that Quebec fishers are fishing for an average price of $1.30, $1.33. We're willing to sit down to work something out to get everyone back to work here. It is even more difficult in the shrimp industry. There's more quota cuts there. It's not like the crab with a, with a healthy resource. We had two boats that were able to garner ice from an independent source. They went all the way to Gas Bay, and because they had good-sized shrimp, they got $1.48. So I guess I'm, I'm reaching out here because of how important this our spring season is slipping by. We have a resource that has concerns. I'm reaching out to ASP, but also to the Premier here to say, look, you helped us with the crab. We can't forgo. Uh, uh, the 400 jobs on the Northern Peninsula. Lobster's doing really well on the Northern Peninsula. Uh, the thing with lobster, there's no processing jobs. So right. there's a couple of significant issues that we're working on right now and we want to let our listeners know about and our membership most importantly. So, All right, Jason, very helpful. And, uh, of course, you would appreciate if ASP want to call in or anybody else who's got um, a perspective on this, please, I think, as Jason points out and the bigger picture of all this this is still really important in Finland and Labrador what happens in our fishery it does often get overlooked until debates around pricing and, and uh, likes pop up and we want to dig in deeper if we can Jason thanks for the time yeah, today and, and if I really could quickly I'll always remember Clyde Elliott when we had the LIFO battle with shrimp a few years yeah, ago God LIFO I remember yeah, that too yeah, wow. the mayor of Gander who said if I if 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 my town, I can tell you what, if my town loses the business of the Twilling Gates and the Musgrove Harbors, yep. and uh, Lewisports and uh, well, you know all these fishing communities. So I guess yep. Lewisport is maybe a service center itself, but uh, Twilling Gate, uh, Fogo. He said uh, we're going to be. Uh, not near as uh, prosperous as we are, and we know that those are fisheries dollars. So and that's why he got involved to, to fight for a fair decision there. So I'll always remember that. Yeah, uh, Claude Elliott, good man. All right, yeah, thank you, Jason. Works. Appreciate the call. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Bye. All right, time for a break. When we come back, somebody's celebrating an anniversary. I didn't even realize he'd been in the House of Assembly for over 30 years. He's, he's still young and spry, and that is Eddie Joyce. And we'll talk to Eddie after the break here on VOCM's Open Line. 30 years in the House of Assembly. Some things I learned on Twitter at night. Who knows? It was actually a useful medium. I want to talk to the man himself, that young, spry, independent member from the Bay, Humber Bay of Islands, Eddie Joyce. Eddie, how are you? Uh, good, Tim. Thank you for uh, for reaching out and, and uh, speaking to me. Uh, first of all, it was 21 years in the House of Assembly. It was 30 years getting elected. Ah, 30 years getting elected. Okay. Well, there you go. I'm getting still damn impressive. First, when I got elected, it's when I stepped 
Cypher Clyde. Yeah, that's right, for Premier Wells, right? Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. the next uh, step aside for Brian Tobin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, th- it's 30 years uh, altogether, or a little over 30 years, and moved 21 years in the House of Assembly, which is a, which is a privilege in itself. And, so, I, like, Eddie, the time seems to have flown by. I mean, there's some significant bits of history in there, too, right? As you say, uh, Clyde Wells won that election, didn't win a seat. You gave up your seat. You previously worked for Clyde as an EA, if I remember, and then you, you stepped down, and, and he went in there. And then, of course, Brian had come back from Ottawa, and you, and you came in there. Just just on those two things, what – I mean, that stuff doesn't happen today the way it did then. What made you feel like you – wanted to do that in both those circumstances well when you run uh, i'm one of those people who feel privileged to be in the positions i um to help people and help your uh, help your people that 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 you represent and, and that elected you so back in 30 years ago um, uh, when clive wells lost his seat and great man uh, 5% of the Bay of Islands had uh, water and sewer. That was it. So sure. I said, you know, what more can you do for a district than put a premier in there who's going to ensure that... And I remember my one conversation I had Clive Wells when I was going to uh, um, step aside. I said, premier, just make sure the Bay of Islands is taken care of. That's all I ask. And he said, Eddie, mm-hmm. I can't guarantee you any more, but I guarantee you that I get no list, less. I said, well, you have a seat, Mr. Premier. And, and I, I, I just feel privileged to be in a position to help people, the, the common people who find it hard to get through bureaucracy and, and, and get answers and help people out. So, and then working for Clive Wells and later for, for Brian Tobin, uh, that, you know, it, the district became better because of it and then myself. And, and, and Tim, I, I want to make it quite clear. I yeah. may be the one elected, but the person who worked with me all these times was Judy Bolt for the last 31 years. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what's the work that she does also for people around. So when you look at the person who's elected, there's a lot of people behind that person. The campaign team I had, Donnie Johnson led the campaign back in 89. He's the campaign manager last election at every election throughout. And all the same people, mostly all the same people, same friends, same family. It's just so fortunate that they have such a group of people around you to uh, to, to be involved and, and see the work that's being done for the district and see the people that are being helping out. And they keep you in tune with things that's, that's happening. It, it, it's a complete privilege to be in that position that where, where you can do that. How is it? So you've been a cabinet, you've been a high-profile opposition leader, a member. Sorry, you've been a very high-profile independent. How's the transition been? Because you were and are. I mean, you're a partisan at heart, or were a partisan at heart, and that's to me and to you that is not a bad thing. We respect people who are partisans, and we grew up in an era when that didn't mean what it means today. But um, you, you are now sitting as an independent. What's that journey been like? What's the difference between being part of a party, being a cabinet minister, and the role you have now? And Tim, I always had the um, uh, uh, good fortune or bad fortune of always speak my mind. <laughs> Even, and I remember and you go back back when uh, when they had the Adele Party commissary, uh, um, Committee on the Fisheries, uh, I think it was 2002, and they were closing down the uh, the Gulf Capelet for no reason, just for the sake, but we got we to do whatever else, even though that's a healthy stock. 
and that we're closing it down. And I was parliamentary assistant to uh, Roger Grimes at the time, and I walked in. And I said, "I'm I'm standing up, speaking against it. It's right. It's it's right." I said, "You could fire me, but so I always had, and I did stand up and I did speak against it uh, inside the party, outside the party, uh, as an independent. Uh, the people that that I represent are the people of Humber Bay Islands, and if I got to speak up, even when I was in opposition, I was leader of the opposition for for a nice while also. Uh, right, yeah. Even when I was in in caucus, even in cabinet, people knew where I stood on issues on Humber Bay Islands, and and that that's one of the things that that people know that I'll speak my mind on behalf of the people that I represent. Um, they're the ones who put me there. They're the ones I come home every weekend and see and be around. Now it's it's um, it's more so, and it's it, it's humbling. Every event that I get invited to, I still feel privileged to be invited to it. Like it it's still that feeling of of uh, gratitude for, uh, for the people. Just before I let you go, tell us about the do they had it Saturday night that I, I was hearing about. So what did they do for you? How did that go? No, it went great. It went great. And then just before I speak with that, Tim, just a few, just two small things here. Yeah, go ahead. And one thing that I'm so proud of is the Q-Cure Hospital in Cornerbrook with yep. radiation. Uh, I know when I was opposition, there's a lady, Joy Buckle, helped me do all the research on it, and we tracked down David Saltman out, out in uh, out in uh, Vancouver Island, and uh, to have people to have uh, radiation in their, their own areas so they can go home to the families is going to be one of the highlights uh, of my career. Uh, once the first person don't have to go to St. John's for that dreaded disease, so so that, that's the kind of thing that I work on. I'm so proud to. Uh, to, to be part of and uh, and so uh, so I, I, that's the kind of things that when you look back and, and you forget the personal stuff yep. you look at how people are going to benefit long after Eddie Joyce is dead and gone and, and I'm so proud of that now Saturday night I had three colleagues come in three colleagues came in we had a great time it was a great event, sold out. Uh, actually, we could have sold a lot more, but we had to keep it down to about 180, 190. Uh, we had the, and that's and the reason why we had it at the Lions Club Hall was yeah. to uh, was because that's where it first started for me in 1988 when I won the nomination. Oh, okay. And okay. the Lions Club has always been good to me. Always been good to me. And so we had it there, and, and they had a um, that was the capacity. But Tim, the special part of. Uh, uh, Saturday night, we had a fundraiser booklet. Uh, I'm involved with Hope Newfoundland in Labrador, yeah. who runs an orphanage in Africa. Okay. Uh, we raised uh, over eight thousand dollars for kids for post. That's fantastic. Eight, uh, um, for post-secondary education, the first kid from the home is uh, finishing their first year of law school this year. So that's, that's amazing. That's where really? that's, yeah. And the uh, the other thing that that I'm involved with um, with other people, Justin French is involved also with it now, is the shoes and jiggers in Africa. So we raise mm-hmm. also there's a, we raise over two thousand dollars plus there's more coming in plus people now are giving us things that we can auction off to uh, give shoes to the unfortunate and the uh, removed jiggers for the kids in Africa. So the whole fundraiser was to help the uh, less fortunate uh, in uh, in Africa. 
And well, so that's uh, and that, that's that that's awesome, and uh, yeah, good good on you. Uh, because again, as you say, also as a, an independent, you're um, you're not raising money for the party. You're, you again, you can do the things that you're doing. Party members can do that too, as well. But uh, that's uh, that's fantastic. Any, I got about you know one minute. Any last things you'd like to? Let me ask you this for the last minute. If somebody's out there listening today, and they're looking at politics, and they're looking at the party system, and they're looking at at you and others who are sitting yep. as independents. What do you say to somebody about getting into politics and what path they might choose? Pick a party, try it as an independent. What's your advice? My advice is always remain grounded and remember that what you're there for is to make lives, people's lives better. And no matter what party, if you stay true to your beliefs and stay true to people, and my motto has always been, always been, that you're with the people in your district in good times and bad times, not election time. That's my motto. And what counts is when someone calls and, and they got a real issue, someone on the other line picks up the phone like Judy Bull does on a regular basis. And myself and Judy have been working together for 30 years. That's what counts. And Tim, in the last thing, I'd like to thank the people in the great Humber Bay of Islands for their support, uh, for all their help and their, all their kindness, all the town council, fire department, senior groups that, that that I'm involved with and they, they just pick up the phone, call me, Eddie, we got a little function, come on over or see him on the street. The people of yeah. the Humber Bay, Bay Mounts, let me be me. Let me walk my dogs on the street and see it, <laughs> wave and, yeah. and still up to before COVID, still coaching basketball at, at the grade 4, 5 and 6 down at That's the awesome. where I went to school. People let you, let me be me. Well, and uh, that's a good message. We'll end on it. Good to talk to you. Congratulations. That's a pretty impressive achievement. I'm sure you got another 30 in you yet. Uh, good <laughs> well, to talk to you. First of all, um, for yourself and, and um, the VOCM over the years, thank you all for giving me the time to raise the issues on behalf of the Hummer Bay because you always give me time. Yourself and, and Patty and the whole VOCM gave me time to raise issues. On, and without that, a lot of things couldn't be done. So I want to thank your, you and Patty and the whole VOCM also for allowing me to get on open line and other issues to help the people of Bay of Islands. Thank you very much. All right. You have a good day, Eddie Joyce. Thank you. That's uh, independent MHA Eddie Joyce. Uh, 30 years or more in uh, in elector- elected politics, as he said, 21 straight, and then he was there in 1988-89. Uh, time for a break here. VOCM News coming up, and we've got three callers lined up. Rob, Chris, and Rob, I believe. Two Robs or a Rod. Anyway, coming up after the VOCM News. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to Open Line. So it's Rob, Chris, and Robin. I'm going to go right to Rob on line one, and I encourage Chris and Robin to hang in there. We will get you. Uh, everybody's going to get a voice today. Rob, you want to talk about the Alberta election. What are you thinking specifically? Well, like, I, I was out there, I, I lost my house out in the fire. Oh, did okay, you? And, yes. And, I'm uh, sorry. Notley is the biggest uh, trounce that there is out there, um, because she wouldn't call in any extra air support. Um, there was water bombers, and all she was doing was she had a, a few helicopters, Flying around. So just, just, just Rob, um, before you go on, just remind us that's uh, that fire. That's the big. Um, there was there's because there's wildfires now. What what year did this happen to you? 
No, that's 2016, the big... 2016 and the wildfires there. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted the history on it. Go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Um, But, um, no, she's the... um, She can't be put back into place because she's got no policies, um, and her policies are flawed big time um, because Alberta is... Any anything western there is wildfires, mm-hmm. and she decided to just take everything out of it. And she would not call in anybody to bring in the wildfires. Now I, I'm I'm back here in Newfoundland now, and okay. Newfoundland is 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 perfect. Like they you know they've got four or five that they need. Right, and they're helping. You mean water bombers, and everything like that, right? Um, and like you know, just where, where I'm to here now. Like last year, we had a wildfire here, and there was water bombers all over the place. Yeah, so that's you making a really interesting point, Rob, on another thing that David Coletto said. So I saw, you probably watched it too, the debate was last week or, yeah, yeah, it was last week. And one of the things that Daniel Smith, the current premier, her opponents was trying to bring forward was this, um, and by this I mean the bigger issue, her record. Because she does have a record and you're speaking about your experience with her record and it's not one that gave you comfort. No, not, not at all. Because like when we came back from, I was I was on a thing to Calgary there, and we came back on the fifth. Uh, yep. And then on the on the on the sixth there, everything just went to shit. And no, you can't swear on the radio, Rob. Don't swear in place. Sorry, I That's apologize. Okay. I apologize. Um, but I'm just saying because the government had known that it already jumped the river in Fort McMurray. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do anything about it, and that was, that was no way. So, so, what do you I'm think saying... is going to happen tonight, though? Because you, you've been out there, you know it, you've lived out there. Daniel Smith has not had the easiest go. A lot of that she's to blame for in terms of things she said when she was doing a job like mine, and she's got a checkered political history. It looks really tight. Everybody says things are going to happen. Calgary will decide it. What do you think is going to happen tonight? What I'm thinking is happening tonight is she's she's going to get her boot. There's two she's. Which she's going to get the boot? Nolly's going to get the boot. Okay. And and okay. she's gone, and she, so she should be. But I, I I really think, you know, out there they really got to get their heads together out there on firefighting stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, well, they're getting hit again. They're getting whacked again. You know, like Halifax is. You know, they they they've got the fires burning out there. Who do they call? They call their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And Newfoundland goes out there and helps them out. I think we're helping in Alberta, too, if I stand. I think we are, yeah. Okay, I, I, I'm I, not privy to that. Uh, but um, I'm just saying that, like, we had privy to water bombers all around. Mm-hmm. And Notley wouldn't uh, come around with that. Okay. And um, so, like, that's, that's just a definite, you know, no go. Okay. All right. I got to leave it there. I appreciate you hanging on. Are uh, you going to stay up and watch tonight? Oh, yes. 
Okay. All right. Well, if you want to call back tomorrow, we can dissect the results. We'll see what happened. I appreciate you hanging on, Rob. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Tim. Have a good day. You too. Take care. All right. I thought we'd get one call. We've got a call on the ode to Newfoundland and an opposition to it. And this next gentleman I've known for a very long time. His brother was my soccer coach. He was a pretty good soccer player himself. Chris Facey, how are you? Not too bad, Tim. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, I, I, I've seen some of your notes um, in different places around the Ode and Memorial University. I know you haven't been very happy with uh, with it. The cancellation or the, I guess it's not canceled, the suspension of it at convocation. Uh, what, what's your take on things now, Chris, with this well, protest happening tomorrow? First of all, tomorrow? I had a couple of quick topics I wanted to cover sure. first, if I got a Sure. First of all, ahead, uh, the Growlers hockey team. Uh, I was amazed to see that they won the game on Thursday night. They didn't deserve to be the goaltender stood on his head and they won it. But Saturday morning when I opened the telegram, there was not a word mentioned of our team or what they were up against. And that I just think it's ridiculous that the, the press, the sports press in this city, has the VOCM had it on for sure, but in the telegram, there was no mention of the team. And how are they supposed to get support if that doesn't happen? Okay, so I'll leave that. Next sure. question quickly was on the opposition. I hear Jim Dinn and uh, Dave Brazel and, and Barry Petten lately talking about the Liberal government and what they haven't done and what should be done and what could be done. And it drives me foolish listening to them because they are so negative. I appreciate they're in opposition and that's their job, but they never have a good thing to say about anything that the Liberal government have done. Now, I'm not a Liberal by any stretch, but I think they've made uh, ways and means to try to solve the doctor's issues, uh, as well as the nurses by going to India. And the problem we're having, as you know, there's a shortage of doctors and a shortage of uh, nurses all all over Canada, it's not something that we have. Yet, all we hear from the opposition is what's not being done. They don't want to spend money, but when the money's not spent, they're also in the same boat. Uh, I wish they would come on TV and say the Liberals haven't done anything good, and here's how they could fix it. It's mm-hmm. easy enough when you don't have to make any decisions or take the responsibility to run off at the mouth. Fair, fair point. I mean, that's the challenge of opposition everywhere. And I think, yeah, you got to find that balance between being too, too nasty, helpfully critical, uh, but then find a way to start to offer solutions so people can look at you as a future government and waiting. I agree with that. All right. Ode, what do you think, Chris? Okay. Okay. Uh, My grandfather fought in the First World War. My father in the Second with some uncles. My grandfather was shot through the leg in Beaumont Hamill and crawled back and lived to fight another day and came home and successfully was a businessman, raised three daughters and then the likes of us. But the reality (laughs) of the thing is the memorial was named in their honor and I, I find it very difficult to understand how a group of eight, so the uh, a clan of eight of vice presidents uh, who are a committee of uh, uh, Dr. Timmons, that they made the decision to exclude it. Uh, I don't think they're all Newfoundlanders by any stretch of imagination. I, I know that the current president, Dr. Neil Bowes, is, is not a Newfoundlander. And I don't think they understood the, re- the, the 
sensitivity of that issue. There's an, in the telegram on Saturday. Yeah, I saw uh, that letter. And it says here, the decision to remove the Ode to Newfoundland from convocation was intended to create safer and more welcoming space for all students, said Memorial President Neil Bowes in a release. What a pile of crap. Mm-hmm. What is in the Ode? that is unsafe or unwelcoming to the students. You imagine this happening down in the States and the universities singing the Star Spangled Banner and the regents took it out of the, out of the uh, convocation. The places go up. Uh, we have, you know, a bunch of people who made a decision on it. They, six months ago, seven months ago, when all this happened, there was significant protest. There were significant letters to the editor, and they were going to put it back to the committee. In six or eight months, this committee of VPs had done nothing except let it sit there, hoping it would go away. Uh, you know, I agree that there should be some changes to it to include Labrador, no question about it. Whether it's to put their ode in or to put additional verses into the ode is someone's decision. But to take it out without having made the decision to take it back to the people who pay for the university is ridiculous. And, you know, I, the Board of Regents, I have to make a couple of comments there. The Board of Regents, some are elected, some are political appointments. Uh, and in this case here, I'd like to know, did the Board of Regents know this was happening before it happened? And if they did, they should all hand in their resignation now. The president of the board is, is Glenn Burns. Did he know? He's a liberal appointment to the board and uh, his, his chair of the board was appointed by the premier. Did he know and did he let the premier know this was happening? I think if the board of regents knew and allowed this to happen, they were they were derelict of duty. I sat on the board in the 80s and I remember Mose Morgan and Les and and uh, Art May and, and Les. Okay, yep. Dr. And they and there's no way when Art May was president when I was on the board that he would have accepted this. Uh, so I just I'm, I'm concerned about. Yeah, there's the a, there's a lot we, you know, all valid points, Chris. There's a lot we don't know, and I, I think in, in fairness to to Dr. Bose, he's in, inherited this these circumstances. Though he, of course, was a leader in there. I, I would I think people. I, I think you hit on something. I think people recognize, I think you hit on a lot of points, but I think people recognize that any music, any anthem can be updated. Lord, Lord knows we updated the Canadian anthem, what, three, four years ago, and there was a little bit of controversy at the time, but it was done and it was seen to be more reflective of the representation of the, of the country. And I think as, you re, as it relates to the, the ode, certainly there's some language in there that, that could change. I think, you know, if the university wants to be helpful too, I I think they need to give meaning to what in the old was creating discomfort for people. And in this whole debate, I've not seen that happen either um, because maybe they have some legitimate points, but I've not seen them. Well, if, I assume if you had a, a conversation with a number of foreign students, most wouldn't have any comment to make on it at all. But yeah. what really upsets me here is that they had six or eight months of doing something. They did nothing. And then this, this statement from uh, Dr. Bose comes out, which, again, as I say, is a pile of crap. It's passing the buck per the usual. Uh, you know, many people who have supported the university have told me that they have they are reconsidering their support for the university because of this. If they don't put something back to represent our, country, our province, but yeah. you know, and you know who will be the the losers of this if that happens? 
it won't be the profs. It'll be the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of those for whom the university was built. Yeah, and that, that history is so important. I agree with you 100%. You have to understand the history of that university. You went there. I went there. Lots of people listening went there. And look, history has good. History has bad. History has controversy. We have to embrace it and learn from it. Anyway, I got to leave it there, Chris. Okay. Great talking to you. Okay. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Robin Reed, you're on hold. I promise you're next when we come back here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. Okay, Robin Reed, thank you. You've been uh, waiting patiently. It's your turn. What's on your mind, sir? Yes, um, I know you're in Ontario, right? (laughs) It it appears so today. Yes, I am. I'm in Ottawa today. Uh, Well, you must be fairly up on the topic of Dr. Jordan Peterson. Oh, yes, and the potential, or has that been resolved, suspension from um, the Psychological Society of Ontario, or whatever the proper name is. Yeah, I I am, sir. College of Psychologists. Call, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And their their problems with uh, Dr. Peterson, I just wondered what your position is. Yeah, look, um, I, I know a lot of people who um, are fans of Dr. Peterson. Uh, I know his perspective rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Um, I, there is some politics. Uh, look, I, I am, I'm not a fan, but I do believe in somebody's right to speak their mind and write as they see fit, and we debate it accordingly. I, I know the... <laughs> The the I, I, my my answer to your question is this: I'm still trying to figure out how much internal politics is driving the issue of um, uh, of the potential suspension from from the society here in Ontario. I mean, Doctor, in some ways, they may be enabling Doctor Peterson to have a bigger platform. Um, but look, uh, Jordan Peterson, not my cup of tea, but he can have his his perspective. And I think we can debate and discuss rationally what he what he says. That's my take on it. What's yours? Well, unlike you, uh, I'm a fan of Dr. Jordan Peterson, and I think he's being uh, persecuted unfairly uh, for what are uh, his uh, political speech, as it were. And uh, the college has no business trying to regulate what a Canadian citizen says uh, in his politics or his political views. Uh, He has comments about masculinity, uh, gender identity, gender expression, um, feminism, I suppose. Uh, that some people may not appreciate, but he has a right to say them, and I don't see why the uh, college is sticking its oar in uh, to try and repress uh, free speech. Well, if I and you can correct me because you're more up to date on this case than I am, but uh, again, I have not read the um, guidelines of 
code of conduct. All colleges and associations have codes of conduct, and they shouldn't, uh, I agree with you on this, repress free speech as, uh, as that should be a, the ability and the right of, of all of us, regardless of what we do, to do it in a responsible way, though, too. I, if, if I remember correctly here, and again, Robin, you can, you can uh, adjust this if I'm wrong, there were, again, there were complaints that apparently came to about Dr. Peterson. I don't know the specifics of the complaint, but any college is supposed to address, um, address complaints. Is that accurate? There were complaints? There were uh, complaints uh, from anonymous uh, uh, they were anonymous, individuals were they? who just didn't like his, his uh, Dr. Peterson's point of view or his tweets. They were not his patients. They were not uh, in, involved uh, with him in any way beyond just not liking his tweets. Yeah. And th- then went to the college to harass him. Well, and then, again, you're using the word harass, uh, and, and certainly you're a fan, so that may be the perspective. I mean, ultimately, the college, as you are pointing out, has got to explain whatever decision they make, how they handle uh, anonymous complaints. I'm sure Dr. Peterson, as a member, would have some knowledge of all of that. The only caution I would say to the broader audience, I think it's not just the college that has political interest here. One thing that Dr. Peterson is good at, and hey, as somebody who's in the business of sharing opinions, he's very good at finding ways to amplify his opinion. So I just bear that in mind as we go through this discussion of of what um, uh, of of how this will uh, will be. Done dealt with. Certainly there's been some, as you know, you follow it closely, criticism on the national political stage of how uh, certain political leaders, Pierre Polyev being among them and others, have embraced the um, uh, some of what Dr. Peterson has said, and that's been weaponized in the political debate between the liberals and the conservatives. So, uh, I mean, I would suggest to you, uh, Dr. Peterson is no shrinking violet either. He knows what he's doing, is my view, unless you have a different take. Well, uh, the college has already uh, ordered him uh, to take what uh, they call remedial, lessons, right? Yeah, remedial media training, whatever. What is that? What do they call that in yeah, China? Yeah, I have no idea. A yeah, re-education camp or something for which he has to pay. They already ordered him to do that, so they've already, without mm-hmm. uh, hearing, as far as I can tell, uh, decided to punish him, and he's refused to accept that punishment. And he's, uh, as I understand it, uh, suing the college in court for uh, breaching his constitutional rights of free speech. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, somebody just sent me, and I'd seen this before, some of his free speech is a, it's it's uncomfortable. Uh, we have to be uncomfortable with free speech. Some of it is, is very um, pejorative and certainly uh, anti, uh, some would argue it, it's anti-feminist, among other things. Hey, I gave you the time to talk about. Is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? Because I do have to go to a news break. Anything you'd like to quickly add, Robin? You've waited for a while, so I'll give you another minute. Well, I'm a big uh, supporter of free speech, and I fully support Dr. Peterson, and I think we all should be uh, on the alert for the further encroachment by these uh, uh, pro- professional boards and government uh, poobahs trying to uh, cut down on our free speech. 
which is the founding of, uh, of yep. a democratic society. So please be aware of free speech and protect it. Well, and we uh, give you marks for a responsible conversation. We didn't get into some of the things Peterson has said because that's the stuff that gets me a little worked up. But you have a right to express yourself. You did. Thank you. And thank you for waiting, Robin. Appreciate the call today. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. That's the first Jordan Peterson conversation I've had in a while. It hasn't ended up in a Donnybrook. As I said to Robin, and you heard me say it, not a fan of the man. Um, but there are people who are. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is the station where we hopefully responsibly give voice to all those views. Somebody who wants to offer a counter view, you are equally more than welcome. We've got 30 minutes left after the news here on VOCM. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every Every corner on all levels, newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back. Last uh, 20 so minutes of the program. I just wanted to say we got a call uh, from somebody who wanted to have more of an explanation of Dr. Jordan Peterson. They said, I'm happy to give people their opinions and Robin gave his, but I don't want to really give too much more air to Dr. Peterson. If you're curious as to why he uh, enters the national political debate, I would suggest you Google him and have a look at what he says. Uh, you know, and I should give you a warning. Uh, it will be very off-putting to, to many people. Um, some of his opinion so i'll leave it there on dr peterson this morning happy to well not really but you know this is open line you want to talk about it we can pick it up tomorrow but somebody who people do like hearing from somebody who if there were a retired home a home for retired politicians but neither he nor eddie joyce are going there yet it'd be kind of a fun one with david brazel and uh, and eddie joyce david brazel just finished his legislative term as interim leader of the conservatives meaning the last session last week Week, uh, unless there's an emergency session, uh, is uh, the last time he will serve as the interim leader of the PC party. And, you know, before he went off to that retirement home with Eddie, I wanted to get him on this morning. David, how are you doing? All good, Tim, and thanks for, for giving me this opportunity. Now, if you were in a retirement home with Eddie, would you two get up to any good over there? What do you think? Well, myself and Eddie have had our clashes, but uh, <laughs> I can say, particularly in the opposition, two of us are on the same page of trying to do things that improve people's lives. And I give Eddie full kudos for uh, you know defending his district and standing up for it, and particularly the rights of uh, the citizens and seniors out there and access to, to health care, which you know I'm confident all the MHAs try to do their part. But particularly, I've seen the action on the, the opposition side. So, you know... Glad to have Eddie as a colleague, and uh, no doubt we still got a bit of time to try to right the ship and do some good things for people of this province. Uh, well, and uh, you, of course, had the health scare, but you've come back full stream. You've been very kind, I know, to, to Greg Smith with your restaurant to, to help raise some money. What what has it? I mean, you're not done as interim leader yet, just to be clear, until the new leader is elected in October. But your time, as I said, unless something changes in the Legislative Assembly, the House of Assembly is as interim leader is finished. Um, What's it been like in this role? Because it's an unforgiving role. I mean, you kind of have to hold the party together. You have to deliver the message while at the same time recognize and respect a, a leadership race that is happening that has at least two candidates in it. Now, how has it been in this role, Dave? 
Well, you know, there are challenges at times, but, you know, we have a good team here. Uh, you know, I brought what I thought was a, uh, a different approach here. And I, and I want to go back to a previous caller, Mr. Facey, to yeah, just Chris, yeah. speak to something that he had said about, you know, that it's always negativity and, and that we're always criticizing. You know, I can't speak for Jim Din and the NDP, uh, but I can speak for the approach that I've used in our caucus. And it's been about talking to government and giving suggestions. Every time that we either get up and speak that we feel something is, is either not going far enough or there needs to be a new approach to solving a particular issue, if it's health care or education or infrastructure, we do give alternatives. We have a blue book that outlines exactly what the PC party would do as part of the process. And, you know, the Premier, and, and I appreciate and thank him for this, Thursday in the farewell speeches, he acknowledged me and acknowledged the fact that he felt I was the most collaborative uh, opposition leader that has ever been in the House of Assembly uh, in working with the government to try to find solutions that are betterment to the people of the province. And that's that's what we've done. I mean, there are reasons to criticize. Either a program doesn't go far enough or it's too late getting out of the uh, blocks to, to be a benefit or it doesn't uh, meet the needs that people have outlined. I mean, and that's our role and responsibility. But I, I think as a caucus, our caucus has been very open uh, and collaborative. We meet and work, uh, my shadow ministers will meet and work with the ministers in government to try to find solutions. If we don't think they're doing the right thing, we're going to call them out on us. That's, that's our responsibility. So, you know, it's, it's been a, a challenge, but a, a rewarding challenge. Uh, I've cherished every moment of it. You know, I joked in the House, uh, how many people get an opportunity to be leader twice of a, a political party, the <laughs> official opposition, and never once had to put up a sign or had to fundraise for part of that. So, you know, I appreciate my caucus colleagues for giving me that opportunity uh, and the people of Newfoundland Labrador for encouraging me for the last uh, two and a half years. But you're right. I've got another almost six months as leader. There's a number of things that, uh, you know, I intend to keep pushing from a caucus point of view. And they're, you know, around health care, around education, yeah. uh, community benefits agreement for our skilled workers in Newfoundland and Labrador, and improving our infrastructure. And more importantly, or just as importantly, getting a fair shake from Ottawa around the fishing industry around equalization, around access to transportation, marine Atlantic, and air access in Newfoundland and Labrador, and all the other things that affect Newfoundlanders and Labradorians as we go through, uh, you know, offshore oil, our mineral um, benefits here, and all the things that uh, drive Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and make us so great a province. Let, let me just pick up on something you said there, because I, I think the Premier's fair in when he says you're, you're collaborative. And I, I admire collaboration, because uh, I live in this place in Ottawa, and there's more punches thrown than there is. Uh, working together, and that's all sides do that. That's and you look at the United States, and it's a whole other crazy ball game. Um, what's what would you encourage the new leader when when that new leader is chosen in terms of approach and tone? Because you do have to be critical. You do have to offer a different vision of of what it what a PC government would look like in Newfoundland and Labrador. But some of our challenges are so significant that there is a collaborative spirit that's necessary. I don't want you to give all the advice you might give to the incoming leader and there's still six months and you still got lots of energy but what do you say about collaboration and its role in newfoundland and labrador politics right now well, I mean, first and foremost, and, and I've done this, myself and the Premier have had, uh, you know, many conversations and many meetings on certain issues. Something we'll come to a consensus and agree on the process, or it'll be explained on what the um, format is going to be or their intent of it. Uh, there'll be other times we'll, you know, adamantly disagree, you know, the um, sugar tax for one. And the carbon yeah, the sugar tax, yep. yep. Yeah, and I get the, the carbon tax, you know, they're pushed a little bit in a corner, but I thought there could have been a different approach. Myself will, and him will differ on the approach there, but 
but I think we're on the same page. Neither one of us agree with it. The sugar tax totally disagree that this will be any benefit to people. Uh, we, you know, we felt there was another alternative to changing people's lifestyles, giving them access to healthier alternatives as part of that process. But I would encourage the new leader to be open-minded. Um, if you've got a question, before you make it a political issue or before you make it you know, front and center in the media, ask the respective premier or the respective minister as to what their intent is or what their plan. Because there may be a way through that dialogue that you can modify it to get what you want done at the end of the day. Uh, I'm also a big believer and have been more all-party processes here. Yeah. Legislation that works best for people should be suggested. We did it uh, on one bill a couple of years ago, and I thought it worked wonderfully. I thought that was going to continue, uh, but it hasn't with this administration. I would hope the new leader will keep encouraging that. Before I leave, I'll have another conversation with the Premier and uh, see if we can come to some consensus on certain pieces of legislation going to the all-party committees so you can get input from the general public, from you know particular uh, experts in that field, so that the piece of legislation meets you know 100% the needs of what you intended to do. Last question for you, because uh, I know you got other things to do, and that is, uh, have you decided what you're going to do? I mean, you got six months doing this. Um, you're looking provincial, federal. You're going to tip your hat to me, Dave, as to what you might be doing? Well, you know, m- my priority is to... Uh Move the party along over the next uh, five months to get it in a good place for the new leader, and I'll help. I'll be around for a while after that to help transition uh, the leader into moving. You know, every politician has a shelf life. Uh, yeah. uh, we'll see when when mine comes to uh, to an end as part of that process. But I'm committed to traveling this province, meeting with people, getting to know a better understanding of what their issues are and their concerns and their priorities, and ensuring that in our blue book. Not only are those issues brought to the forefront, but there are solutions around how we're going to address those particular issues. And, you know, just outline my, my biggest criticism, and I'll go back to Mr. Facey's, what's been about this administration, has been we've given uh, recommendations the general public have, unions have, you know, a multitude of individuals and organizations have as part of solutions to things. And what I found, unfortunately, they're being more reactive than proactive. I mean, there's always, it may take four or five or six years to solve an issue, but if you start doing it in advance, including everybody, I think you can make it work. So next five months, that's going to be the message I put out there. Uh, hopefully, we can get the government to, to be on side with that. Uh, their government, there'll be government at least till the next election. Uh, so we need to treat them with respect as long as they respect the people of this province and the will of the people. And we're going to make sure if the, if the will of the people is not being heard, it'll be heard in the House of Assembly through the PC party. All right. Good to talk to you, Dave. I'm sure we'll talk again. Always a pleasure. And uh, thank you for your service. As you say, you're not done yet, but uh, it's a milestone to to do what you've done a couple of times and to to finish for now in the House of Assembly in that role. And as you said of uh, Eddie, um, you guys do tough work and tough times. and, um, and, And your message of collaboration is certainly one I've always appreciated. Thank you for the time. No, appreciate it. One last point to which is our thoughts and prayers going out to the people in Halifax now as they're facing some turmoil there. All right. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Take care, Jim. All right. That was Dave uh, Brazel, the uh, interim leader of the opposition, still in that role until a new leader is elected, but finished his time in the House of Assembly. All right. Got uh, a gentleman on the line who wants to tell us about a stolen RV, and we will get to that call. Don, we'll get to you right after this break. 
I have to laugh. I, I do take Twitter in from time to time. And uh, one guy here is upset that I'm nasally. It is. Boy, I'm sorry about that, David. You know, I've uh, I've had my nose broken a few times. You'd probably say deservedly. But probably it was, mostly during sports. And I was not defending Jordan Peterson. Somebody else called about Jordan Peterson. So, man, fire away. Critique. That's the job. I'm all for it. Just put it in perspective. And uh, you're welcome to call. We can chat. I will treat you with respect as I do everybody else. Even the ones I don't agree with who like Jordan Peterson. Now, Don, line four, your motorhome got stolen. Tell us about that, sir. Okay. Um, uh, my name is Don. Uh, I had my motorhome over to a Kilbride garage uh, for dewinterizing. And uh, the owner said I could uh, put her there because I needed to make a... Uh, a sale. I had a heart replacement, or I'm sorry, a heart valve replacement. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it was a bit dicey, I guess, for me to drive and so on. And um, anyway, and 327 Sunday morning, mm-hmm. uh, um, three guys uh, came over there, hot wired the machine, and headed towards uh, the Goulds. Where they gone from there, I don't know. But it's a, um, I wondered if you'd just take the information and maybe some good Samaritan out there would see Yeah, it tell us what, what your, uh, give us a quick snapshot of what your RV looks like and plate oh. number and we'll, uh, you're on the air now, okay. Oh, okay, thank you very much. Um, it's a 2011 Ford Four Winds Motorhome. And the license number is HRK759. Um, and you can contact the RC, or RNC at 729-8000 or my own number, uh, 727-7214. And uh, just hoping for some information to see if I can get it back. And uh, my my friend and producer Dave said, uh, Don, if you have a picture and you uh, uh, email it into him or our main line there at our news at VOCM, we can um, we can tweet that out so people, if they uh, have seen it, can let the uh, pol- police know it. So you got that option as well too. Okay. No. Yes, I. Now I've already made a report to the police, and they have the pictures and everything with them. So, okay, but uh, if you send it to on air at vocm.com, we'll we'll give it a run around too. We have a pretty good distribution channel. Yes, I would say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see if we can get your RV for you. I I can't imagine it's easy to um hide a stolen RV in the city well, anyway, but I think that's what blew me away more than anything. <laughs> yeah. If you're how do you steal an RV? I mean, you know. Yeah, it's but Anyway, uh, audacious, stupid, maybe somewhere in between. I don't know, Don. Anyway, thanks for calling. We hope you get her back. I know people love their RVs. A buddy of mine runs an RV sharing business, and he tells me all the time how passionate his owners are. So uh, good luck, my friend. Thank you very much, sir. Okay, on air at VOCM.com, you send it, we'll get it up. Um, that was Don from uh, Stolen Motorhomes to Uber. John, line one, no Uber in St. John's, correct? No, I know, and uh, how are you doing today? I'm good, man, how are you? Good. I just want to call because we were at a function for, uh, Saturday night, 
And after the function was over, we called we call the cab, and we were waiting an hour and a half for the cab. And according to the people that were outside waiting, they said, that's just normal. I don't get out very yeah. often like that. And we waited an hour and a half, and then from, from Paradise to CBS, it was $40 for the ride. And we just came back from a trip from Toronto, and up in Toronto, we'd be there. We'd call the Uber, and, and it'd be five minutes. We'd be there, and we could see him on our phone where he was to. And we left from uh, a good ways from the from the airport, and we got to the airport for forty dollars in, in rush hour traffic. So what's wrong with the government? Are they getting bought out or something that they they won't go along and approve the Uber? I, well, it could be a few things here, right? So uh, I again, I I'll, I'll look into this for tomorrow. But I know usually when Uber wants to go into a jurisdiction, and I don't know if they've done this, Newfoundland, Labrador. I will check. They mightn't think the volume is there. Um, they come in and they speak to governments about uh, looking to to set up and do that. So it may may or may not be the government, Uber themselves, or Lyft, or some of the other ride shares maybe looking at newfoundland and saying there just isn't the volume there it could also be that the um, you know the taxi industry is is strong in different jurisdictions don't know what the case is in st john's but uh, uh, they often um, can be a force in saying no we don't want them here but man you're right on the caps i have to tell you this so when i come home i usually stay at my mom's and i usually pre-book for a morning flight because usually the only time you can get out is on in the morning and it's been two or three occasions now that when I've done the pre-booking and it's for you an awful time like 4 a.m. 4.30 uh, they they say well you might end up with another company because we don't have a cab but we'll make sure we dispatch a cab there's there's certainly a challenge it seems with the number of of cabs there yeah, yeah, well, I, I, there, it, that could be. I mean, that's. I mean, they're big. Ca- yeah, there's certainly some big cab companies, but I also think there's a labor shortage as well. Uh, I think Uber there's no labor shortage because people are using their own vehicles and they're doing this with fair money to get some fair time. Yeah, and again, I don't know enough um, uh, about Uber, John, in terms of the way they work. But I, you gotta get a, you have to become part of it. So I don't know. I, I would, you know what I would do if I were you. We need one here, and it's really it's all the same. If we had been there and and the function had closed and it rained, and we'd be outside for an hour and a half waiting for the cab in the rain. And when we did get the cab, they said, "Don't, we're not, don't even come over to where you're to because it'd be rushed. People get trying to get in." So we had to meet and walk down the road somewhere else. Boy, gone are the days when you could just, uh, I remember this when I was about Sir George Street, you just step out there and there'd be cabs, right, every every second. Um, and again, it's a good question. Maybe we'll see if we can get somebody on from the uh, the taxi industry and the like uh, tomorrow uh, or the government. Hear, we're going to find a story from them is all you're going to hear. Yeah, no, but unless you, no, no, fair enough, but. I, I welcome anybody else who may, might have an idea as to what's going on. I partially think it's a volume thing, but, you know, I don't, probably well, nothing. Everywhere else uh, they got it. Halifax got it. Everywhere else across. Yeah, Halifax it. does. So why don't we have it here? Bottom line. Yeah, no. All, all good questions. I'll, I'll I'm not saying we shouldn't. <laughs> well, maybe you should. Go for it. Go for there it. Anyway, all right. thank you for the call. I appreciate it. No problem. Well, do you take care and have a good day. You too. You have a good day. I, I have always wondered what the issue is with there being no Uber in St. John's. It is, as uh, John just said, I mean, I was in Halifax last week, as I said, it's there, there's Uber there. Um, I mean, the city's bigger and in some ways more concentrated, but I don't know if it's working well or not working well. But hey, if you know, call me, tell me tomorrow. I'll do some digging. I will be back tomorrow. Sorry for some of the critics who don't like that, but that's life. Got to embrace it. Call. We'll have a 
chat. Again, uh, thank you to Dave Williams, always a superstar when he uh, helps me and helps me. He's the guy who runs the program. I just do the, the gum flapping, but Dave was awesome today, as usual. Great uh, series of conversations, great guests, uh, great insight from all of you. I really enjoyed having some chats about Gus, Gus Echigari, because for me, somebody who contributed the way Mr. Echigari did is a model for all of us of how we can play in the public debate, whether you're as um, fine with uh, wordsmithing and language as Mr. Etchgary is. I don't care. I just like the approach he took and we can all take that kind of approach. Be passionate, be thoughtful, be firm, but be open-minded. That's VOCM's open line for today. Back with you tomorrow with Sarah Strickland. Look forward to all of that. Until then, I'm Tim Powers. Take care.